When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And we have so much great stuff to talk about today. I'm going to try to be a little more succinct, if possible, uh, on the specific issues because we have major, major quantity to cover this week. Uh, part of the challenge with the Old Testament, particularly, is so much material and so little time. Squeeze it all into one year. Uh, and this week, actually, is the first one in Come Follow Me so far where the curriculum actually starts skipping chapters. We're going to be covering, or the curriculum says, we need to cover Genesis 28 to 33 this week, which focuses on Jacob's ladder and on uh, Rachel and Leah and the birth of the 12 tribes, uh, at least the beginnings of that, uh, and then the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau, some, some beautiful stories today. But next week, when we start with chapter 37, that means we've skipped 34, 35, 36. Now, I think it's okay to skip 36, no offense to the descendants of Jacob, but that's a genealogy chapter. But there's some amazing stuff in 34 and 35 that we really need to squeeze in. So, uh, prepared to stay for detention, uh, and we're going to go above and beyond this week, uh, beyond just the, the chapters that we're suggested to study. And we, we will have to be more selective as time goes on. The, I'm grateful the church is giving Genesis its due. We'll spend uh, a disproportionate amount of time on this first book of Scripture, but it deserves that attention. We'll have to be more selective as time goes on. But uh, as I've said before, even the skip over chapters typically include some incredible things. So let's not skip over too many uh, if it can be helped. Now, we, we need to pick up speed for today's lesson by going back to the end of, of last week's lesson. Where, which was a hard place to end. It was tricky. It was, a, it was a messy chapter because you have Jacob and Rebekah tricking Isaac into giving Esau's blessing to Jacob instead. And, and we had our little court case, so to speak, and hopefully we understood that there was some right in that, but I don't think it can excuse all the wrong in it. And that's important, too, to recognize the humanity of the people that we see in Scripture, which should hopefully give us some hope for the humanity within each of us. But it did leave me wondering, uh, the same question I wondered about when we talked about the fall. Could, could it have gone differently if Eve had spoken to Adam about her, her choice, her impending decision? Would he have understood? Would he have agreed? Would they have been able to make that joint decision jointly uh, since it affected both of their outcomes? And I would like to think, I'd like to believe, that Adam would have seen Eve's wisdom and courage and, and followed her example. I mean, he did follow her example. So I would imagine that he would have agreed once they had a chance to talk about it. And I, I ask myself the same thing for last week when it comes to Rebecca and Isaac. Would Isaac have understood? Would he have agreed? Would he have recognized that his, his diminishing eyesight was clouding some of his vision and his preference was beginning to get in the way of principle? Would he have understood and believed Rebecca's report of this, this prenatal uh, revelation that she received? And I guess what I'm thinking about is each of us in our relationships, 
Do we trust our loved ones with our deepest spiritual experiences, with our most profound insights, with the revelation God has vouchsafed to us that maybe isn't meant for us alone? And I pray that in our relationships, especially within our families, we feel comfortable and courageous enough to let people know this is the way God is speaking to me. It's ironic that we sometimes feel comfortable bearing testimony in sacrament meeting, but not at home in family home evening. Uh, I hope that our loved ones know the kinds of experiences we're having with God and that we know theirs as we try to navigate the covenant path together since it's covenant companionship that God is ultimately after. Well, with that in mind, when you look at the very end of Genesis 27, where we, where we ended last time, verse 46, Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? You sense Rebekah's concern there? It's more than just my son's physical life. We saw that last week. That she's, she's heard reports that Esau wants to slay Jacob because of this lost birthright and lost blessing. But it's more than just preserving his physical life. She's concerned about preserving his spiritual life. Esau married outside the covenant. We can't allow Jacob to make the same mistake. We can't. What, what purpose was all my efforts as a mother to raise these covenant sons, to be able to prepare them to pass the covenant down to them? if they marry in such a way that they do not have a covenant companion, then the blessing stops with our generation. And what good is my life to me? Rebecca wonders. Don't forget, Rebecca had given up everything she knew, her previous life, her family, all that she knew back in, in Haran, to follow this covenant path, to join with Isaac within the covenant. And trying to raise her sons to do likewise, to perpetuate the promises of God, more than my life to me, is my son's covenant lives. And we have to do something to help preserve Jacob's. It's interesting that this would weigh so heavily upon on Rebecca primarily. There's an old talk that Elder Irene gave, a masterpiece. It's called The Law of Increasing Returns. And in it, he compares the law of diminishing returns, where we, we get all the, the bang for our buck right off at the beginning, and then it starts to peter out. Compares that to the law of increasing returns, where it is slow and steady and, and, and putting in the effort without seeing much reward, at least not in the short term. But eventually, as we are patient, a hope against hope, as we trust in the promises of God, ultimately those blessings do come, and they keep increasing exponentially. There is uh, sands as the sea and stars of heaven as far as your posterity is concerned. There is this growth of the promised land, this, this priesthood blessing all the kindreds of the earth. That is a law of increasing returns, not the law of decreasing returns. But it does mean that it starts very slow. One covenant son for Abraham and Sarah. A covenant son, Jacob, for Isaac and Rebekah. And, and now she's worried, will that one covenant son, all my hopes are in him, will that come to nothing? In that talk, Elder Irene said this, and he was speaking of the incomparable investment that, that parents pay, especially those that, that forego the quick rewards of, of work in the world to be able to raise their children at home. 
and that primarily throughout history has been mothers. He said it this way, Men and women working outside the home deal mostly with early crops and the law of diminishing returns. In the home, they spend far more on late crops and the law of increasing returns. It's important to remember that. It could help a woman understand why arguments for a career and little time spent rearing children are so tempting. And it might help a man understand why a child trampling on the teachings of the home may tear at his wife even more than at him. His paycheck comes often. Hers may come a few times in her life. And now perhaps, because of the choice of a child, one check may not come at all. My heart goes out to Rebecca. And all this behind-the-scenes work that she's doing, uh, call it what you will. Pass judgment however you choose. But to see what is weighing on this mother heart, on this covenant conscience, we have to find a way to make sure this paycheck does come. Because all the future blessings, all those future returns, rest on this boy of ours keeping his covenant. Thus ends chapter 27, and then we begin 28. Now this is one of those examples where it's unfortunate that there are chapter breaks and chapter headings because we tend to end at the end of a chapter and then pass through the veil somehow and forget everything we've learned and then pick up the next week or the next day with the next chapter as if it was a clean slate. And it isn't. So in this case particularly, 27 ends with, with Rebekah turning to, J uh, to Isaac saying, we have to do something for this covenant son, Jacob. And then 28 begins with verse 1, and Isaac called Jacob, and blessed him, and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. In other words, son, you must not marry outside the covenant. When you just start with 28, that sounds like Isaac's idea. The covenant is so important, son, you need to marry within it. Well, Isaac agreed, but it was Rebekah's idea first and foremost. We talked about this prior, and we'll see it again today. It is... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes, but it is, I, it is even more uniquely the God of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel. And to see Rebekah there stepping in, exercising agency, that's one of the, the traits that defines her, remember, and making sure her, father, her husband speaks to her son along these lines. Well, verse 2, Dad continues, Arise, go to Padana Ram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father. And take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. So, just like my father's servant did for me, go to the right place at the right time in order to find the right person. Verse 3 and 4, he continues the blessing. God Almighty bless thee. Make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. You get a sense that Jacob is meant to be Adam 2.0, or Abraham, what, 3.0, Abraham multiplying, Isaac multiplying, Jacob multiplying. May God give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. Here he is passing down the Abrahamic covenant as the ultimate inheritance. You receive the birthright, you receive the blessing. I want to make this crystal clear. Multiply and replenish, and may the Abrahamic covenant pass through you to the world. 
with all of its promise of priesthood blessings and, and promised land and posterity, innumerable. By the way, this in some ways is a reiteration of birthright and blessing. And guess what? Old Isaac's eyes are now wide open. As part of our court case, we brought Peter to the stand and suggested that the power to bind also includes the power to loose. And Isaac didn't use it once, he, once his eyes were wide open. Well, here again, more than just, I'm not going to take it from you now that I see I've been had. I am going to reconfirm it upon you. And as clearly as I can, you, son, are the line through which the promises of Abraham will continue to spread to the entire world. Verse 5, then, Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Padanaram and to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now, it's interesting here because this is the opposite approach to Abraham. Remember when, when Abraham is talking to Eliezer of Damascus, his steward, and, and Eliezer is like, okay, I'm supposed to go back to Haran to find a, a wife for your son. Great. What if she doesn't agree to come? Should I bring your, your son with me and try a second time? And remember, Abraham is like, under no circumstances. In fact, swear to me right now that you'll never bring my son back there. And yet here's Isaac saying, son, you need to go. Go there yourself. Find yourself a covenant wife. And it's interesting. I, I think there's, there's some, some truth here in terms of the way that, that Isaac was raised was different than the way he planned here, at least, to raise Jacob. Uh, my father knew that world. Uh, he would say, Abraham, my father, Isaac would say, grew up in Ur of the Chaldees and, and was about to be sacrificed by his own father. He raised me in a very different way than he had been raised. And thank heaven for it. Uh, he understood what we were up against in that world of pagan idolatry. He saved me from it. Uh, and I, I never had to deal with it in the ways that he did. Son, if, if the pendulum has swung towards not being in the world in order not to be of it, perhaps your generation needs to swing it a little bit further and go back into the world, still with the desire never to become of it. But I, I guess there's pros and cons to these, right? On the one hand, it might be naivete on Isaac's part, going, well, I, I don't even know that world, so head into it. I doubt that's the case, though. I see it more as, a, as, a, as positive course corrections, generation by generation. I've talked multiple times about proving contraries. And often over time, those hopefully start to come into balance, where one generation maybe was a little too just, and the next one was a little too merciful, almost overcorrecting. But then hopefully, course correction, genera generation after generation, we find, find some kind of celestial center where justice and mercy are perfectly balanced where in the world and not of the world are perfectly uh, entwined. I hope, hopefully that that's what's happening in these, in these verses here. And whatever is going on in Jacob's mind and heart then, there is some reality to the, to the thought that we can't protect our children from those things forever. That at some point, we have to let them go. And perhaps even go to places that we hadn't originally intended for ourselves. I'm not saying lower the standard. He's trying to help his son keep the standard. And ironically, leaving might be the best place for him to be able to do that. Uh, there's not many covenant uh, connections possible here in Canaan yet. So go back. Now, verse 6 through 8 is an interesting one. Because the camera pans from Jacob to Esau now. 
He's still there, probably fuming, right? Uh, some smoke coming out of the ears. It says, when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, all over again, didn't take it back, just reconfirmed it, and then sent him away to Padan Aram to take him a wife from thence, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. So picture what, what Esau is understanding here. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac, his father. You get what's happening to Esau? It's like, ah, I see my first mistakes. This, this really means a lot to my parents. This is what the covenant really is resting upon. And I didn't follow that path. But mom and dad are being crystal clear that my little brother needs to. Hmm. Well, with that realization in mind, or perhaps with a softened heart, perhaps with a chastened one, he realizes, I did do the wrong. And so what does he do here? Verse 9. Then went Esau unto Ishmael, and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebuchadnezzar, to be his wife. Now, you could view this negatively or positively. On the negative side, you could say, well, too little too late, Esau. Yeah, nice try. Are you just trying to re-ingratiate yourself with your parents? Oh, maybe if Jacob's gone out, out of the picture and I show my parents how that I want to marry in the covenant now, I'll choose a daughter of Abraham's posterity, someone within that covenant line. Uh, I mean, there's some separation here. It's Ishmael's child, but Ishmael, there's nations that will come from that also. Uh, and so it's still Abrahamic that we're talking about. And then maybe dad will, will reverse things and finally revoke the blessing to Jacob and give it back to me. Now, that might be cynical of us to, to think that. And based on what we'll see of Esau by the end of today's lesson, I prefer to take the positive approach. That here is a young man who realizes what he has lost because of his own decisions and begins to have a change of heart and make some different choices and finding someone within the covenant to marry. It is interesting that both Esau and Jacob have a lot of growing up to do. And, and these boys, with all of their friction and all of their contentiousness, grow up by the end of today's lesson to be incredible men of God, both of them. Now, verse 10 and 11. Jacob went out from Beersheba. His journey begins. He went toward Haran, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, I thought I had some rough nights of sleep on long road trips, for example, when you'd find the, the cheapest motel you possibly could because you just couldn't keep your eyes open anymore. It wasn't exactly a stone for a pillow, but the bed kind of felt that way. Uh, in this case, you wonder what all of this is meant to represent to us as we follow Jacob through this story. He's, he's got the blessing. He's got the birthright. It's all supposed to be good, right? But now he's launching out into the unknown on his own. In fact, unknown, he doesn't even know the name of this place. It's just a certain place, he calls it. And to be in some certain place emotionally, is this the emotional low point? Is this the dark night of the soul? The sun has begun to set. I have nowhere to lay my head. A stony pillow a painful, maybe sleepless night. Where do I go from here? And if you are venturing out on your own, whether as a, a new 
husband or wife, a new father or mother, a new convert to the church, a new, just some change. Or maybe even I've made all these covenants and I've received, I've been promised all these blessings, but where are they? Because right now I have no idea where I am. And this dark night is setting in and I don't see the hand of God quite so clearly. Well, it's in this moment that we see Jacob's ladder rise to heaven. It's one of the more, most beautiful passages in Genesis. And, it, we, and we're meant to come back to it repeatedly. Verse 12, he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Sound like the city of Enoch? When we saw back in Moses chapter 7, the whole city was caught up to heaven, but then the righteous, Noah's converts, were caught up to meet the city of Enoch there, that he saw angels descending and ascending. Well, now Jacob is having a similar vision. And what he's seeing is this stairway to heaven. It's more than a good song, okay? Uh, Some translations even say that it's a stairway. But I do like the idea of a ladder for a couple of reasons. Ladders focus on the vertical component, right? And they are straight and they are narrow. Now put all that together and what are we seeing? Jacob's ladder is the vertical, straight, and narrow path. Back in Genesis 15, when when Abraham was having his dark night of the soul, wondering if God could ever keep his promises to him, and remember he cuts the covenant and lays it out, the confines of covenant, and then God, as this pillar of fire, cloud of smoke, passes between them. Follow me, Abraham, down the covenant path. Well, in this case, it's follow me, Jacob up the covenant path. Climb the ladder rung by rung. In fact, Joseph Smith once thought that the principles of the gospel are like a ladder. Hmm? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, And that we climb them rung by rung. Faith and repentance and baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we continue, I mean, to borrow the Doctrine and Covenants' language, grace to grace, rung by rung as we ascend to heaven. And honestly, in in a way, I think I prefer the vertical version of this to the horizontal because it ups the stakes, okay, Uh, in this way. On a a horizontal one, I think often we veer off, right? We, We leave the covenant path, but then we come to our senses at some point and we return to it. And, and that is always our opportunity. Repentance is, is such a blessing. We'll see some of that today too. But I think sometimes we don't, we don't realize what we have lost when we were off the path. It's like, oh, I wandered, whatever, missed a few blessings maybe, but I'll just keep, keep on trucking forward, right? Keep pressing on and eventually I'll find my way back. Uh, I, I've admitted before that I hate turning around if I've, if I've gone too far uh, on, on the road, if I've missed my exit or something. It's like, no, we'll figure out a way to get back on it. So uh, it might be actually better to just turn around and, and shorten your detour. Well, with a vertical covenant path, if you were, to, I mean, again, mentally picture this. If you're climbing the covenant path, if you are ascending Jacob's ladder and you veer off, okay, You see how the stakes have been raised? Because if I leave the covenant path on the vertical dimension, I fall. I fall back to earth. Now that sounds harsh, but like I said, there are always opportunities to to restart. And it's that starting that I wanted to focus on. 
I think too often we just think, okay, I was, I got, I exercised faith, I repented, I was baptized, I received the gift of the Holy Ghost, and now I'm in that long step five, enduring to the end stage, and I messed up. But I'll just come back and I'll I'll start enduring again. And the problem with that, and I don't mean that the fall back to earth is punishment. In fact, in some ways, it's the best possible thing that could happen to you, because you get back to ground level. And you begin ascending the rungs. And maybe if we didn't take that first ascent seriously enough, this time, rather than just jumping back into endurance that probably won't endure, let me start again with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me really begin again, building a more solid foundation upon him. Let me take repentance more seriously this time, since I see what what discipleship entails, and really what we're up against. May I begin with a real broken heart and contrite spirit and offer it to him and then re-immerse myself in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be all in, fully submerged, and recommit to this life. And then truly receive the Holy Ghost. Make more of a conscious effort to hold on to his companionship until it's as close to constant as it can get. I think with some added momentum. I mean, have you ever seen those shows where you have to like climb up something, you know, some huge ramp, and you can't do it from the bottom, from the base of it. You have to step back and get a massive running start. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a, a kind thing, a good thing, that God just has us begin again. Okay, you've stepped off the path and you came crashing down. Well, look to the side. You're at the base of the ladder. It's still there for you. So get a running start and build some, some spiritual momentum as you reclimb with real faith and repentance and baptism and Holy Ghost. Endure to the end. There's, there's something powerful about this version of the covenant path. Now verse 13, behold, the Lord stood above it. So yes, we have to look up to see him. We have to reach up and climb and God said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest. To thee will I give it and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And then this all-important phrase, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now there we see the full renewal of the Abrahamic covenant with posterity and promised land and priesthood blessings to all of the kindreds of the earth in thee and in thy seed, exclusivity. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed, inclusivity. It's the same thing we saw with Abraham, same thing we saw with Isaac. Now we're seeing it with Jacob. And we just saw it a couple of verses ago, but big difference, a couple of verses ago it came from Isaac. This is the promise God made to me. Well, first it was a promise God made to Abraham, and then Abraham passed it down to me. But then God made it to me directly. And now I'm going to pass it down to you since you're my son. But then God does him one better and renews it directly, just like he had with Isaac, just like he did originally with Abraham. As I mentioned that first lesson on Abrahamic covenant, that's what God does for us the moment we are sealed, when we find our covenant companion. And between the three of us, husband, wife, and God, enter into that new and everlasting covenant of marriage. 
with its patriarchal slash matriarchal priesthood, finally stepping into that. We are all heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, whether we are born in the covenant or are adopted into the family at conversion. That's the chance for a parent to bless us with the things God blessed them with directly. But when we are sealed, whether that happens in this life or in the next with others standing proxy, that's when God can say, it's not just because you're part of the family. I'm renewing it with you directly. And that's exactly what he does here for Jacob. And like I said, it's all in the context of him going off in search of a covenant companion. Okay. Now, a couple other things to think about in that, in that verse. When it says the Lord stood above the ladder, the, the Hebrew is vague there with its, its prepositions. And other translations say beside him. Now, that's interesting. So there's this ladder and the Lord stood beside him. There's even one Bible translation that says that the Lord was leaning upon the ladder. That's kind of a, a fun mental image. Whenever I need to go on the roof to put up the Christmas lights, for example, several of my kids want to join me up there. They love the view. But they're also really scared to be able to climb up the ladder. And I get it. Okay? I have to pretend I'm not scared uh, myself. But it's always the sense of, will you please hold the ladder so it's steady as I, as I ascend it? And I do love the thought of not just God being above us at the top of the ladder, beckoning us to climb, but also being beside us, leaning up against the ladder saying, I'll hold it for you. I'll keep it steady. In fact, I'll keep you steady. Maybe, in fact, it's a combination of the two. There is one Bible translation that does say it that way. It says, the Lord stood above and around him. It's like, well, we don't know exactly which of the Hebrew is uh, it's suggesting here, so let's just use them both. And it's like, how does that work? Well, with God, I guess it works just fine. Uh, metaphorically, let me be above you to beckon you higher, but also alongside you, rung by rung, to steady you, to warn you not to look down, not to worry about the height. Don't get dizzy in your discipleship. Just keep climbing, and I'll climb right alongside you. I do love that thought. Now, verse 15, he says, Behold, I am with thee. So there's that beside aspect. And will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. So even here, as you venture out of the promised land, even when you get to Haran, to Padan Aram, uh, this place there where your, your grandpa was really worried about idolatry, I can be with you everywhere you go, and I will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. I imagine that verse 15 was probably one of Jacob's favorites. God will be with me no matter where I go, even in this deserted place, even in, in my stony griefs, as we'll see a little bit later. God will, will be my companion and my guide. He will, he will not leave me. He will bring me again. I think too often we think, well, it's interesting. This is, comes from a time period and a culture where every little city-state had its God, uh, where every domain had its own deity. And the, the amazing thing about the monotheism of ancient Israel was, yeah, we only need one God because he's the God over all the earth. Okay? This is not some 
provincial pantheon. This is the God of the universe. But I worry sometimes that even in our fuller understanding, do we sometimes revert back to that, that myopic view that there are only certain places God can be, that I can only find him among the faithful, that I can only find him in, in holy places because he would never step outside of those things. Well, again, if we get the idea of Jacob going to a place that Grandpa Abraham had been concerned about, but God reassuring him, I'll go with you in order to bring you out. I'm not saying we march into to negative influences uh, or just cavalierly leave the covenant path. I'm not saying that at all. But neither am I saying that you've gone too far for God to find you. That is the furthest thing from the truth. It's been beautiful to see my son on his service mission serve among the homeless and in addiction recovery centers and to find God in some of his most dramatic displays of presence and some of his most sincere examples of love and mercy and kindness. Yes, you'll find God in the temple. And this place becomes a temple of sorts for Jacob. We'll see that in a moment. But you will also find God in, in places you never expected. Because he's searching for you. He's, he's with you to go in and to bring you back out. He's trying to return you to the covenant path, to bring you back to, to the promised land. And so you will find God in addiction recovery centers. You will find God in homeless shelters. You'll find God in prisons. You'll find him in cemeteries and in hospitals and in psychiatric wards. In some ways, that might be the easiest place to find him because there are so many people desperately searching or seeking for him when they find themselves there. There's something powerful about that promise. And I hope we understand and are willing to seek out the lost in unholy places, those places can be sanctified by the turnaround that can take place there. And if you think about what the Lord said in places like 2 Nephi 27, two times in a row, two verses in a row, I am able to do mine own work. Or like he says in section 60 of the Doctrine and Covenants, I am able to make you holy. As we just saw in that verse in Jacob's experience, I will not leave you. I will be with you. I will go in with you. I will come out with you. I will not give up on you because you're mine. I had an old bishop who used to say that God's redemption is relentless. And I love that. A relentless redemption. He will seek you out until he finds you. And the way that Jacob says it there, or excuse me, the way the Lord says it, I'm not going to leave until I've done what I said I would do. Until I've done what I've spoken to you of. And that's this idea of, I'm able to make you holy. So don't give up on me. I haven't given up on you. I'm able to do my own work and my work and my glory. No wonder I don't, I don't sign out early. I love this job. It doesn't feel like a job. It just feels like glory. I can do this all day. In fact, I do and I will forever. That's how God approaches bringing to pass our immortality and eternal life. 
I'm not going to leave you until I've done what I said I would do. That's the promise of God to Jacob and to all of us. So bank on it. In fact, awaken to that reality. It's exactly what Jacob does. Verse 16, Jacob awaked out of his sleep. I mean, that promise was so mind-blowing, it woke him out of his slumber. To the point that Jacob then says, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. Like I said, we can find Jesus in the most unexpected of places. I had no idea he would find me even here in this dark night of the soul. We just need to wake up. We need to lift our heads out of our, off of our stony pillow. We need to recognize that God has been here all along. Verse 17, he was afraid, Jacob was, and he said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Well, after the experience he just had and the promise he just received, he's afraid? Well, I guess that makes sense. It's a, this is, wow, this is far more than anything I could have imagined. But the dreadful? This is a dreadful place? Again, King James Maybe that was a good word in 1611. Not so good anymore. And most other translations use the word awesome instead. And talk about an awesome place. And not just, whoa, awesome, this is so cool. No, awesome as in awe-inspiring. That's what awesome (laughs) used to mean, okay? And that helps us understand the fear aspect too. Fear as in reverence. Fear as in awe. Jacob seeing this, this ladder reach to heaven, waking up and realizing that God is, is steadying it, ready to climb right alongside him. What an awesome place. And I am filled with that sense of jaw-dropping. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me. Confused at the grace he so, that so fully he proffers me. That's the the experience that Jacob is having here. And so in verse 18, he rose up early in the morning. He took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. Sounds like a strange little ritual. But to go from pillow to pillar, a place where you were lying down and now a place that you want to rise up, a place that you were spiritually asleep, but a place that you are and have now fully awakened to your own divine potential. This is a place to commemorate this. Lift this stone. My stony griefs have now become a pillar that points me to heaven. This is the, the foundation stone of the ladder that I will spend the rest of my life climbing. He pours oil upon it. There's a sense of sacrament and sacrifice. Think about this verse from Isaiah 61. We always remember the phrase beauty from ashes, but how's the rest of the verse go? The Messiah would come, Isaiah promised, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, and I think that's a good description of Jacob as he's leaving home and everything he knows, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Now do you picture him pouring that oil upon that pillar? the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. There's this, fix this this pillar into the soil, that he might be glorified. 
and they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And again, I think that's what Jacob is feeling. Will my waste place ever be rebuilt? Can my stony pillow ever become a pillar and planting of the Lord? The answer is yes. And God will make sure of that. Now in verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. Now Bethel means house of God. Remember he had said that. Surely this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Yeah, you're right. And Bethel becomes such an important place. It already was. If you remember what we saw earlier where, where Abraham builds an altar. Everywhere Abraham went, he builds, builds altars, right? Got to be a temple nearby. And it was between Bethel and I. Will I climb to the mount of the Lord, go west and up back to God's house, back to Bethel? Well, here, two generations later, Jacob is, is there himself, calling this place the house of God, Bethel. Verse 20, and Jacob vowed a vow, saying, if God will be with me, now hold on to that if, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. Now, the if and the then can be confusing, because it makes us sound like, okay, well, maybe. Maybe I'll accept that offer. Um, but let me, let me hold off until you come through on your, your part of the bargain. That, that's sort of what it sounds like. If you'll do it, if you'll do everything you said, then I'll accept you as my God. There's other translations that make this a little more clear. Rather than if, it's since. Since you're going to be with me. Since you will keep your promise to me. Then of course. Instead of if, then, it's since and therefore. And all he's asking God to do is to do what God had just promised him. I'm not asking for anything more than that. Just keep your word. I know you will. You are the word of God. Then in verse 22, he continues, This stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. There's Beth El. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So somehow the law of tithing has been passed down. Uh, Abraham giving the tenth of all he had to Melchizedek, king of Salem, in order to bless other people. In thee shall the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And now Jacob, uh, without even being asked to, just realizes God has promised all to me. <laughs> the very least I can do is return to him his portion, a tenth. Well, 28 then turns to chapter 29. And here we see where these blessings really begin to flow into Jacob's life. Namely, a covenant companion. And just as God promised, I will be with you as you go. I'll be with you as you return. We'll see all of that unfold in the next few chapters. Now, verse 1 of Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. And he looked, and behold, a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. And a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. Now, in those verses, we're just setting the stage, okay? 
Now, a lid on the well, that's new. We didn't, we didn't catch anything like that in the wells that Abraham or that Isaac dug in, in Canaan. We didn't see that at the well when Eliezer first met Rebekah. Makes you wonder, what's going on here? Is there continued famine in the land? Is, there, is water an even more precious resource that you even cover the well to stop any kind of evaporation from taking place? Uh, this water is as precious a commodity as possible. And so we're going to have this stone on top. Maybe that's also to protect it from people who might use it. Remember, there was all kinds of fighting over wells that we saw last week. And so let's protect this one. And then this idea of there's three flocks that are just kind of hanging out by it. The idea here is that they're waiting until all the flocks are gathered. We see this clarified later on in the, in the chapter. Once all the flocks have come from all the people nearby, then we'll roll away the stone. It's probably heavy. We'll need some, some help on this. But also, in a, more, in a more altruistic view, we're all here with equal access to the blessings of this, of this precious resource. And instead of me kind of sneaking in, getting more than my fair share, and then sneaking off, no, we're going to wait and uncover the, this fount of living water so that all can have free and equal access to it. Sound like a covenant kind of context? In fact, sound a lot like Jesus Christ here as the well of living water? That if you will roll the stone away, then life, life-giving water will come and give, give, and everyone can have access to it. I, to me, there's just something power. As I was pondering that this week, I just thought, huh, roll the stone away. Oh, that rings a bell. And as I was thinking of that, okay, I, I do see some beautiful symbolism here. He's here to water his flocks. Hmm. All are gathered to him. Huh. Covenant context. Here we are trying to gather Israel to the source of living water. Roll away the stone so that a living Lord can meet their every need. Good place to find your covenant companion. Hey, eh, Jacob? Now, verse 4, Jacob says to the men that are there, My brethren, which was closer to the truth than he realized, Whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. So Jacob says to them, well, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? Interesting, he's thinking of others. Jacob is. How's Laban doing? And they said, He is well. Oh, in fact, behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with the sheep. Now, verse 7 again sets the stage. Lo, it is yet high day, Jacob says. Neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep and go and feed them. And they said, well, we can't until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. I don't know if Jacob is frustrated there, like, she's coming? Okay, th uh, this is my chance. What are you guys doing here? Get out of here. Uh, this is the time of day that you should be out grazing your flocks and herds. And they're like, yeah, I, I get it. But this is also the time that we all have to come together to be able to access this water. Okay, so sorry, we can't leave you alone with her. Uh, we're, we're here for this too. Verse 9 then, while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now this is a hard worker, obviously. This is one, a woman who's not afraid to be there among male shepherds. Uh, you get a sense that there's strong women that grow up there in Laban's family. His sister Rebecca was that way. 
willing to give water to ten camels and, and not give up until the work was done? Well, Rebecca's niece, Rachel, is cut from the same cloth. And to see the kind of covenant companion she can be for a person like Jacob. So verse 10, it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. It's like, I'm not going to wait on these other guys. I'll do it myself. I don't, I don't care about your, your customs and your, and your time period. Uh, it, now's the time to, there's, now's the need, and so now's the time to serve. And so Jacob himself rolls away the stone. Which again is great symbolism that Jacob slash Israel is the one that's supposed to be rolling away the stone so that all people can find the living Christ. We're the ones that are supposed to be drawing water from the well to make sure that everyone has, has what they need to survive spiritually. It's interesting, by the way, to see the role reversal here because a generation earlier, Eliezer sat back and said, okay, I'm going to know the right kind of person covenant attributes when she offers me or offers my camel's water more than just meeting the minimal needs of me. And so a generation ago, it was the woman uh, serving the man. And here, it's the man serving the woman. And to me, there's something beautifully fitting about that. Uh, that it's, we're taking turns serving one another. That there's not a sense of well, it's like we saw with help meet back in the story of Eve and Adam. This is not just, oh, you're my little helper. No, I'm your enabling power that in every way corresponds to you. How's that, honey? Uh, and that's the kind of equality we're supposed to have. Equal partners, the proclamation of the world says, right? And so I remember years ago, early on in my marriage, hearing an older couple teach a bunch of us younger couples that you should, they brought a, a box of jello as, as a visual aid. And we're like, huh? Said, oh yeah, this is really important equipment for your marriage. And they said, you need to set your roles in jello instead of setting your roles in stone. And what they meant by that was sometimes the, the wife will serve the husband and other times the husband will serve the wife. Sometimes the husband will have a heavy calling and the wife will be there to support him. And sometimes the roles will be reversed. And the wife has a heavy calling and the husband is doing everything he can to make sure she can magnify it. There might be health concerns. There might be financial straits. There might be just periods of life where the jiggly jello allows us to just pull out that role and reverse it and say, "Let me. it's my turn to step in and help you, honey. And, and I get that sense with these, this multi-generational family of faith as the roles are reversed here. Equal partnership, serving each other. Now, verse 11, now he's just fed or, get, or watered the flocks. And this is a, a verse I have to caution my students about. Be careful how literally you follow the examples of these patriarchs and matriarchs. Okay? Yes, we're supposed to find covenant companions. But in verse 11, as soon as he's met Rachel, and Jacob kissed Rachel and lift up his voice and wept. Now, like I said, careful there, okay? Uh, this was not a romantic kiss. This would be a, a kiss of family and of welcome, of kissing cousins in some way, I guess you could say, because in a way they kind of were, okay? Uh, there was a literal connection already, mom and, and dad, and, and so they are kissing cousins. But that verse also gives you a glimpse into the personality of Jacob. 
Remember, Esau was the cunning hunter, the mover and, and shaker. And Jacob was a plain man that liked to, to stay close to home. He was a dweller in the tent. No wonder he was, had such a rough night out on the, uh, on the, the mountain of, of Bethel. But for him to kiss her and to weep, to me, there's, this is the sign of a sensitive soul. This is someone for whom family means everything. And he's just been ripped away from the only family he ever knew. And to, to be re-entering another domain of family, relatives, kin, lineage, family of the faithful. Oh, I'm home. Even though I've had to leave home. In verse 12, Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's brother. Again, that's a broad term, so relative. And that he was Rebekah's son. There's more literal. And she ran and told her father. Okay, so she's as, as excited about this uh, chance meeting that wasn't by chance uh, as Jacob had been. So 13, it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. He told Laban all these things, okay? So uh, this is another age-old joke in seminary and institute that if you're going to, to kiss the girl, you better be prepared to kiss her dad as well, okay? So again, this is not romance. This is just family greeting, like, I, wow, my own nephew that I've never met, come in and join the family. Well, he did more literally than anybody thought. Verse 14, Laban said to him, surely thou art my bone, my flesh, and he abode with him the space of a month. Family means so much more than just, oh, some kind of social connection. This is bone to bone and flesh to flesh. It's what Adam said about Eve. And they were being married. Uh, here, here it is. We are related. And I, I hope we feel that way. That we feel a, a connection to people that perhaps are perfect strangers. But the moment we realize that we're related... It just feels different. I'm willing to do anything for you because you're me. You're my bone. You're my flesh. And since we're all from Adam and Eve, we should feel that way towards everyone. Then in verse 15, Laban says to Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldst thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? So just because you're my family, I don't want to take you for granted. Uh, so if you're going to be staying here for a while, who knows how long, um, you might as well work and get paid for it. Uh, you don't have to take advantage of me. You can work. And I'm not going to take advantage of you. I will pay. Uh, what, what sounds good as far as a wage is concerned? And I picture Jacob with a little wry smile going, well, uh, how's this for an option? I sure took a fancy to, the, to the, that daughter of yours I just met by the well. Uh, could I work to provide some kind of, of dowry so that I can marry her? I came for a covenant companion after all. Didn't think I'd meet her on the first day, but wow, this is great. Again, young single adults, don't get your hopes up. It doesn't always happen that fast, <laughs> okay? But notice how it's, it's described here, verse 16. And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, Rachel means you, like a lamb, E-W-E. -E, uh, one of those, a precious daughter that is going to help multiply the flock, okay? So... Great name for a covenant companion when you intend to have seed like the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea, okay? Meanwhile, Leah, this one's trickier, 
in, in uh, there's a cognate there in Arabic for, for cow. And so that might be a play on words here where it's, well, Rachel was the you, the sweet, precious you lamb and Leah was the, the family cow. Hmm. That's, that's harsh. In the Hebrew, Leah can also mean wearied. That just, this is, she's tired. Okay, that, well, what is that supposed to mean? We get a little better clue in the next verse, 17. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. Now, what did you mean by tender-eyed? Does that go along with this idea of being wearied? I, I don't know. This one, people have fought over this one for centuries. I guess millennium. That, that's, how, that's how old this, the, these records are. What is exactly does that mean? We don't know for sure. But there does seem to be something by way of comparison. Because it said, well, she was this, but Rachel was this. And what was Rachel? Beautiful. Well-favored. Which suggests that Leah was not. My heart breaks here for Leah. And for anyone who has ever felt like her. If you remember King David, it's too small. He can't be the king of Israel. And the, and the Lord says to, to Samuel the prophet, well, quit looking on the outside. Look beyond that. Look past it. I look at the heart, not the outward appearance. That's important for us to understand. And the closer we are to God, the better we become at seeing past the outside too. I remember when I was first hired to be a seminary teacher and they gave me this really important counsel. They, they said, be, beware the four C's. Don't criticize, don't complain, don't compare and don't compete. And especially those last two, I thought, oh, when you're on a faculty, when there's other people, oh, okay, I get it. This isn't a competition. This isn't a comparison. We all have different spiritual gifts and different backgrounds and different abilities. And I have loved the people I've been privileged to serve with on faculties throughout my career. So grateful for the things they do better than I do that I can tell students that are struggling in my class, if it's, if it's my teaching style, how do you like to learn? And they describe it, oh, you would be so good in sister so-and-so's class or brother so-and-so's class. It's, they're wetter, way better for you than I am, okay? Uh, this is not a, a competition. This is not a comparison. But I will admit for so many of us, as far as human nature is concerned, those four C's are tough to steer clear of. We sometimes do compare. We sometimes do compete. And that often leads to complaint and criticism, and we need to avoid it all. I'm actually amazed when I think of Leah and just this tender-eyed, and that she's not the one I want to marry, Jacob would say. Think about what Isaiah said about Jesus Christ himself. In that powerful passage, The Suffering Servant of Isaiah 53, he says, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Sounds like Jesus chose, actually, now that I think of it, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, and Judah was one of Leah's sons, not Rachel's. Interesting that Jesus himself would come in that lineage, and that he would choose not to be comely, not to have some kind of form that would bring everyone's attention. No beauty that we would desire him, which is an interesting thing. It's the idea of, well, then why would you desire him? Because everybody seemed to. Hmm. 
there must be something deeper than outward appearance that is drawing them. This is more than mere charisma. There, there's something that pulls them in that's far deeper than, than surface level. I remember when my wife and I were first married and, uh, well, when we were first expecting, when that promised child finally came, uh, and we, remember when she was like, I, I just worry if we have a girl, and then we found out we were having a girl, she said, I just hope she's not pretty. And I remember going, that shocked me. I'm like, why? You're beautiful. And she said, well, thank you, but that can be a problem because sometimes that's all people expect you to be, is outwardly beautiful. Sometimes there's some baggage that goes along with that. Sometimes there's some expectations or or whatever it might be, I just, I hope that our daughters don't have to go, th go through that. Actually, at the time I smiled, I said, oh, I get it now. That, that totally solves the mystery. My wife was like, what do you mean? I said, now I understand why you married me. You were trying to water down the gene pool. I get it. Uh, well, I hate to break it to you, honey. Uh, our daughters are all beautiful as well. Uh, and, uh, and more than that, they're spiritually deep. And that's what my wife was after. Not even I could, could, uh, could dilute uh, her, her genetics. But to see the, the depth that my wife was hoping our daughters would develop and that they have, that to me is a beautiful thing. I think sometimes people complain about others being shallow and yet they don't make them look very deep for what they really are. And... Jesus made sure people were looking deep. And I think we see something similar in Leah. You're going to have to get past the tender eyes. You're going to have to get past the weariness and see someone who is meant to be part of this covenant connection as well. Okay, I, this, this is a tricky one. In fact, in some ways it's so fitting because we had some struggle between two brothers and an elder and a younger just last week. Jacob and Esau. Well, now, like I said, you can almost always find female equivalents for male people or male figures in the scripture. And Jacob and Esau now find their equivalents in Rachel and Leah. And how does Leah feel towards Rachel? How does Rachel feel towards Leah? Is there some sibling rivalry here? You better believe it. Well, verse 18, Jacob doesn't help at all with that because it says that Jacob loved Rachel. And said to dad, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban responds, well, it's better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. So abide with me. Now that doesn't exactly sound like, like he's thrilled over this, but okay, well, better than anybody else I've noticed that out there hanging out by the well waiting for the, the lid to come off. Well, verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And then one of the more beautiful romantic statements in scripture. And they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And as I've admitted, those seven months of proposing sometimes felt long because she still wasn't saying yes, but they felt short because I wasn't going anywhere. And over the year plus that we dated before we were finally able to make a covenant uh, connection, it was, it was glorious. I wouldn't go back and speed up the process. The time that we spent coming to know each other and wrestling with the Lord for answers to our prayers gave us a depth that we could build upon.
And so I'm grateful for that. It did seem like a few days. In fact, we just had our anniversary last week. 23 years she's been putting up with me. Uh, 23 years we've been growing together and, and building and rebuilding and struggling and suffering all as we... That's what real marriage is. Creation, fall, atonement. Oh, our creation was glorious. It seemed like no problems at all once, once marriage finally came, once the answer finally came. Fall, never a falling out of love, but a falling out of naivete as far as how easy marriage would be, uh, as e how easy life would be, as we have endured difficulty and health challenges and financial setbacks and busyness, busyness, busyness. I am I'm so grateful for my covenant companion. And if 20, I'll put it this way, before I met her, eternal marriage sounded a little scary because eternity seemed like a long, long time. And I worried, would I ever get tired of this? I loved football. Uh, in high school and in college. And I ate it and drank it and slept it and breathed it and played it. But by the end of the season, I was ready to move on to something else. I needed a break. And I just worried, will eternity feel too long to be married to the same person? I mean, it's one thing to go, oh, eternal marriage and keep it vague. But to turn to somebody and go, well, honey, what do you think we'll be doing in 65 billion years? Yikes. Until I met her and then realized, I hope eternity is long enough that I hope the, the eons don't fly by. And yet they do. They, they seem but a few days. And I'm only 23 years into it. I imagine you, I've met many of you, and to see old love, that's a beautiful thing. A truly beautiful thing. I think of David O. McKay and Emma Ray McKay who are such poster children for celestial marriage in this life that, is, that deserves to be eternalized. It's already been celestialized here, so we might as well make it celestial there. And when somebody went, they, used, they lived in this apartment in the old Hotel Utah, now the Joseph Smith Memorial Building in downtown Salt Lake. They had this little apartment there that everyone affectionately called the Honeymoon Suite. And somebody once said, like, uh, President and Sister McKay, you guys have been married like 60 or 70 years by now. Why do they still call it the Honeymoon Suite? And with a twinkle in his eye, President McKay said, well, when you plan on being married forever, 70 years ain't bad for a honeymoon. So let's make it an eternal one. There's something powerful about this. I, I remember reading, there was a nurse that was there to help David, Ome, uh, or David B. Haight near the end of his life. And he was in his late 90s, uh, and his wife was mid-90s as well. Good old Ruby. And near the end of Elder Haight's life, he couldn't see uh, the teleprompter or notes, uh, so he just spoke from the cuff in general conference. And, he always talked about Ruby. Just felt like I was on the front porch swing with grandma and grandpas. They're just telling, telling us stories about their young lives. And this nurse, she was ending her shift and another nurse was coming to take her place. And as she came in, the nurse said, oh, be quiet, as quiet as you can, come here. Peek around the corner. And silently they, they tiptoed in and looked around the corner and there were, a two, there, there were two nonagenarians, is that the right word? Two people in their 90s that were holding each other in dancing pose and shuffling, just swaying back and forth, 
dancing together in their living room with no music playing. And the nurse just said, I just wanted you to see that. That is the sweetest thing I've ever seen. Old love really is. And to see but a few days pass, and here we are in our 90s, swaying to music that doesn't have to be played on the outside. It's always been playing within. Something beautiful. Hashtag relationship goals. Well, here you have it. Okay. Well, verse 21, Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. So, sure enough, those days really were fast. It only lasted one verse for us. Okay, seven years pass in a single verse. Wow. Well, 22 to 24, Laban says, Okay, yes, you've, you've uh, provided the dowry. Your seven years are up. And so Laban gathered together all the men of the place. He made a feast. Came to pass in the evening. So it's dark now. He took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. And by the way, next verse, Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid for an handmaid. That's going to be important later. Now, we probably grew up on this story, and so this doesn't come as a surprise to us, but you better believe it came as a surprise to Jacob. It was dark. She was most likely veiled. And there they are in the tent on their wedding night. And in the morning, in one of the most... The way the King James translators gave us this verse, it's hilarious, or at least it would be if, if Jacob thought it was a laughing matter. It simply says this, verse 25, And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> what? Be- behold? And this is what I'm seeing? This I've been had. And so Jacob runs to Laban and he says, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? Ooh, beguiled. There's that trickery word. And trickster Jacob the supplanter himself, uh, the younger that took the, pl- the, the place of the older. Well, I'm just returning the favor, son, and replacing the younger with the older. Because, as he says in the next verse, Laban said, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, again, is that a shot at Jacob's status? Where we come from, it, it has to be older first. We, we, we take the birthright and the birth order seriously. Well, I'm not sure about you guys back in Canaan. Now, Jacob knows he's been had, and it's too late to make any changes here. And uh, Laban knows that, okay, I got you, and that's what, not what you bargained for. I'll tell you what. And they come up with a secondary agreement. Originally, it was... Work seven years, and then I will give you Rachel. Well, he pulled the switcheroo, and behold, it was Leah. I'll make it up to you. I'll give you Rachel, too, but you're going to owe me seven years more work. Again, plural marriage was part of the culture. It was, it was understood at the time. It was okay. But like I said, Laban, knowing that, okay, I, I got you, I'll reverse the order here. First wife, it was work the seven years, and then you can marry her. This one, wait a week. And be Leah's husband for a week uh, alone. And then I'll let you marry Rachel. And then you can work for seven more years. Okay? So again, this is another place where my heart goes. Plural marriage was so hard for everyone. 
especially the women. I don't want to minimize in any way in that time period or in the early days of the church what would, what would go on in a woman's heart and soul. And it's one thing to avoid the four C's when it comes to a work environment, but within a family, with the level of intimacy that that entails, this, this is a hard thing. This is a test and trial, not just of faith, but of, of family and of feelings and of everything else. No wonder God is trying to wrench the saints' very heartstrings with a similar, a similar test of faith. But that's exactly how it proceeds. And one week later, Rachel is now married to Jacob, and Leah has definitely taken her second place status. Now, just as Laban had given his daughter Leah a handmaid to help, that's Zilpah, he also gave his daughter Rachel a handmaid to help her, and that's Bilhah. So right now, there are two wives uh, for Jacob, and there are two uh, servants. Each wife has a servant girl, okay, a handmaid. So there's Leah and, and Rachel and Zilpah and Bilhah. Are we, are we getting all the names down? I hope so. Keep going, though. Verse 30 he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And again, that's one of those gut punches for Leah. It's clear for us all to read about, and it would have been painfully obvious to her as well. You only married me by, by trick. What you wanted was, was Rachel by choice, and, and you love her more than you'll ever love me. I remember reading one of the accounts of the early church members in plural marriage and and this I believe the man had four wives and one of them needed a new dress and so this man bought four identical dresses and gave one to each wife and he, he, one of his older sons was old enough to to kind of see what's going on and said dad um why why do you do that um that mother was, uh, you know, that, that, that wife was only, the only one that needed the dress. These other ones didn't need it. That one doesn't even like the material. I mean, these sister wives, why, why are you treating them that way? And the father just said to the son, look, I, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And the only way I know to do it is to treat everyone exactly the same, whether they like it or not. Um, I can't, I'm doing my absolute best to help all of them avoid comparison and competition and complaint and criticism because it's hard enough for us already as it is. Now, there's no easy way or single way to, to run these kinds of households, to be able to navigate these kinds of relationships. I'm grateful. Monogamy can be hard enough, let alone uh, put the challenges on steroids and call it polygamy. But Jacob isn't making it any easier here. Uh, and in a way, it's ironic because he knew what parental preferences were back growing up. That my mom liked me best. My dad liked Esau best. Well, has that just become normalized? And the mistakes of the parents have now just, they're in the blind spot of the children. It's like, what, what, what's wrong with that? It's my parents treated me. I don't know. Yeah, but there's something going on here that, that is difficult, at least on the human level. But take it up a notch and notice verse 31, powerful statement. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and that's a strong word, okay? We, we can tamp that down a bit. 
Maybe that word is chosen because it reflects Leah's perception. And since perception typically determines one's reality, I'm not the loved one, which means by default I must be the hated one. When, no, 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 that, that's not the case. But when the Lord saw that Leah felt that way about herself, at least, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Now think about this. This, okay, you want to be uh, Sarah 3.0 or Rebecca 2.0, then Rachel 1.0, then you're going to be barren too because that was Sarah's trial and that was Rebecca's trial. And if you're going to be covenant companion, then you're going to have to be tested to the core as well as far as do you trust that God can keep his covenant through you and that somehow you'll be able to have seed even though biologically that seems impossible. Now, Rachel, ooh, this is your turn to be tested you see how things tend to balance out? I've heard them called compensatory blessings. Well, we can also call them compensatory trials. That Leah had been going through a trial probably since childhood of being the, the homely sister instead of the beautiful one. Well, now Rachel has to deal with, I'm the barren wife instead of the fertile one. Now I know what it's like to feel like you don't measure up. Now I know what inferiority feels like, and that's painful. Now we talked about this with Sarah and Hagar, the challenge of pride from above and pride from below. And that can switch back and forth sometimes when the roles are reversed. And we're going to see the same problems here with Leah and with Rachel. We have to, in our relationships, in our self-perceptions, we have to get past that. And I know it's easier said than done. There's an amazing quote from Boyd K. Packer. He said, some are tested by poor health, some by a body that is deformed or homely. Others are tested by handsome and healthy bodies. Now you're like, wait, that's a test? We'll bring that one on. Sounds like Tevye, right? Uh, it's, it's like, if you curse someone with riches, well, feel free to curse me and make me a rich man too, right? Uh, well, what's, where's the justice in all of that? President Packer went on. Some are tested by the passion of youth and others by the erosions of age. Some suffer disappointment in marriage, family problems. Others live in poverty and obscurity. Some and perhaps this is the hardest test, he said. Find ease and luxury. And again, that goes back to Tevye. Like, what? That might be the hardest test? Are you kidding me? Sure, test me with ease. Well, wait before you ask for that. President Packer's last statement there was, All are part of the test, and there is more equality in this testing than sometimes we suspect. Now, that last phrase has hung with me for years. There might be more equality in our trials than we imagine. And that sometimes the hardest trial is the apparent absence of any? Really? Maybe so. Again, if the purpose of our life is to come to know God, and sometimes the best way to come to know Him is in our trials, where we, our extremities push us towards Him, well, then maybe an absence of trial is a trial because nothing is 
pushing me in the direction of God. I'm good. I think I've got it all on my own. Now, like I said, compensatory trials, compensatory blessings, we all seem to go through them at some point or another. And typically, if we were to know all of the trials that other people have endured or will yet endure, most people are content to just stick with their own list. I wonder if that's what's happening with Rachel and Leah here. And I think you can see part of it when you understand the names that Leah gives to her sons. Now, here's a chart for you who are, are watching this. She ends up having four sons in the next four verses, okay? Uh, now, you thought it was rapid fire with big LDS families today. Uh, well, there's time, we saw seven, verses, or seven years pass in a single verse. Well, there's some time passing between each child, obviously, okay? At least for gestation period of nothing else. Uh, but verse 32, Reuben, her firstborn. Verse 33, Simeon is born. 34, Levi is born. 35, Judah is born. Now, think about their names, and the footnotes can help us with our Hebrew. Now, Reuben means, look, a son, which I always laugh at. It's like the birth comes, and she's all, Ru, Ben. And, and Jacob's like, okay, if that's what you want to call him. And she's like, what? No. Again, I don't know how it all works, but Reuben means, look, a son. And then the way Leah explains it, she says, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. When Simeon is born, and Simeon means hearing, Leah says, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. When Levi is born, and Levi means joined or pledged, Leah says, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. My heart breaks for Leah here, because you can see into her soul with the names she gives her sons. A son. Look, God's blessed me with a son. And why does that matter? Because he saw my affliction. He saw how much my husband hates me. And maybe now that'll change. And he'll love me because I gave him something that Rachel couldn't give him. Next son. Finally, God has heard. Well, what did he hear? He heard that, that I was hated. And now maybe my, my, my husband will love me. Third son, Levi, joined. I, it's, it's that my husband can finally be joined to me because look what I've done for him, way more than my sister. Wow, Leah, this... If I was a therapist sitting down with her and talking about what was going on in her mind and heart when she chose these names, Leah, this has very little to do with these boys and very much to do with you and your husband, and especially how you feel about how he feels about you. These, these, you deserve those names more than your boys do. And this sense of, ah, oh, the angst that you're feeling, it's coming out every time you call them by name. You have to be able to work through these emotions. You have to somehow come to terms with, with what God has given you, not with what your husband has taken from you or withheld from you. The, the, these boys aren't leverage points. These aren't, they aren't weights you're putting in the scale in your competition against your sister. They're real human beings, and so are you, Leah.
ah, it's work on your self-perception and realize that you are enough. You are more than enough. You are a mother in Israel with three incredible children that I hope will fill holes in your heart when your husband isn't willing to. Anyone who feels something similar, my heart goes out to you. And I know that God's heart is drawn toward you as well. He came down to see. When the Lord saw this, he gave her a compensatory blessing. And I, I hope we can rest assured in God's love. If love from a more horizontal perspective might not be forthcoming. And I hope we can rest in that. By the time she has her fourth son, she's getting there because she names him Judah, which means praise. And it's not a matter of, well, now my husband might praise me because I gave him a fourth son. No, she's, at least at this point in life, for this moment, we'll see her struggle later, but for this moment, she's okay. This is a good day. And so she names this son Judah, prays, and explains it. Now will I praise the Lord. She, for the first time, she doesn't hint at her husband in the name of her son. It's not about me and Jacob, it's, or, or me and Rachel. It's about me and God. And look, I will praise the source of compensatory blessings. I will praise him for the way he has reached out to me and pulled me out of my stony grief, the way he has turned my pillow into a pillar of praise. So beautiful. Now, I kind of wish we could end there. It's a good note. It's a good moment for Leah. But we do turn the page. And in chapter 30, I call this the familial arms race. Because as you noticed uh, in arms races, where as soon as one superpower has more weapons and the other superpower has to match, and you kind of get ahead, and it's each party is trying to leapfrog the other. And that's what, exactly what happens in chapter 30. In verse 1, when, when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. So, like I said, role reversal. And now it's Rachel's turn to feel jealous. You were used to the view from above when it came to outward appearance. Now you're getting used to the view from below when it comes to the opportunity to to provide children in this covenant relationship. And as we saw with Sarah, as we saw with Rebecca, the P of posterity trumps any other because it's, that's how the promise is perpetuated. Well, what's interesting about this is, I think it so often happens in life that you might feel like the queen of the world at certain stages of life because people appreciate what you are or have or can do in those stages. But life is long enough that stages turn into other stages. And for those who might have been felt, who might have felt friendless in high school, for example, all of a sudden there are more mature people in college or in early or even mid young adulthood that start to see your attributes for what they're worth. <laughs> 
Oh, hold, be patient with yourself and with your peers. You change, they will change. And while you might not feel appreciated in one time of life or in one area of expertise or lack thereof, in other areas, it's like I struggled in that calling, but I needed to learn some humility and reliance on the Lord. This calling, man, I was made for. And I can magnify it, uh, and it's magnifying me in, in the eyes of those that I'm serving, because this is something I'm actually good at. I'm grateful that, like I said, life is long enough to give us views from above and below. And hopefully it doesn't lead to pride from above or pride from below, but rather humility in, at both elevations. That's the ideal. Well, in this case, it's Rachel struggling in a way she's never struggled before. Now, verse 1, we saw jealousy. In verse 2, we'll see anger. And it's Jacob's, actually, which is odd. Verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in God's stead, who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? Now, this is an interesting moment, because, wait a minute. You love me. I thought you hated Leah. No, it's never been hatred. Um, but, but I... Hmm. I'm, I'm frustrated, honey. You got frustrated with your sister. You're, sounds like you're frustrated with me. Well, I'm frustrated with you. There's, welcome to, to hum, human nature again. We, we've seen it throughout these Genesis stories and I'm grateful for it because I feel my own human nature well up too often myself. But what's interesting here is this couple is going through a trial. It's the trial of infertility at this point. And there's blame that's starting to go in the wrong direction. It's interesting that, that Rachel seems to be blaming Jacob in verse 1. Give me children, else I die. You gave children to, to Leah, why won't you give them to me? And then Jacob responds to that frustration with frustration of his own. And, and now there's anger. Uh, comparison and competition have led to criticism and complaint. It's always how it goes. I remember my wife and I talking about similar situations and realizing if you face off against each other and look at common problems from uncommon angles, then it's really easy to look up from the problem and see the other person behind it. You understand the, the, the geography of this analogy? If we're across, sitting across a table from each other, looking at this metaphorical problem in the middle, I see my spouse behind it. And no wonder my frustration or my fear or my anger over the issue gets splashed up on her behind it. Whereas if we'll come and sit together, picture you're at a restaurant discussing challenges. Don't sit across from each other. Okay, Sit side by side. Uh, put your arm around one another and look at the problem from, from the same side. That this problem cannot be allowed to come between us. Maybe it can force us to hold on to each other all the more tightly. Because this is hard. This is something we're going through together. We can't let it tear us apart. And so change the angle there and make sure you don't blame the other person for something that is out of their control. Give me children, it's your fault, or vice versa. What, am I in God's stead? Why are you blaming me? I don't have any power over this. That's a hard lesson to learn too. 
most young couples I know of, and I was guilty of this too, you enter a marriage thinking that you know how parenting's gonna work and, and you've already planned, pre-planned your family size and what genders they'll be and how far apart they'll be and what their personalities will be like. It's like, oh, you're playing God? Uh-uh. There's a God who doesn't have to play God. He is God. And I think sometimes we just assume that we know how it's gonna work. And that's, that's a faulty assumption. We don't know how many children we'll have or when we'll have them or if we'll have them or what they'll be like. We assume that it, it's going to be all nurture and we'll nurture perfectly. And then they come with their own nature and, and we work within it and through it. And you understand what I'm getting at here? I, I hope that Jacob and Rachel will be able to work this out. And they do but it's messy along the way. Well, verse three through five, notice what happens. Rachel starts thinking outside the box, just like grandma-in-law Sarah did. Well, Sarah had Hagar. Sarah can't have kids, but Hagar might be able to. And that child technically belongs to Sarah, sort of in a way, since, she was, since Hagar was her handmaid. Well, I can do that again. Father gave me Bilhah, and so if I give Bilhah to my husband, no longer my handmaid, but now my husband's additional wife, here are wives and secondary wives, uh, then hmm, if she gets pregnant, then it counts, it counts on my side. And so sure enough, Rachel gives Bilhah to Jacob and she gives birth. In fact, she gives birth twice. Now, I will say there is a huge difference. Sarah was doing this selflessly. Her humanity rose up later when, when she found that, that it worked, that uh, Hagar had conceived. And it rose, again, PTSD. This is the trigger point. Ah, my humanity comes up again. Unfortunately, Rachel's been human this whole time through. And so less selflessly, more spitefully, more of the arms race, she gives her handmaid. And Bill has two children say something. The names again say something about Rachel's approach to all of this. Verse 6, Bilhah gives birth to a boy named Dan, which means judge. And Rachel is the one that picks the name and says, God hath judged me and hath also heard my voice and hath given me a son. Aha, so there we are. I'm catching up. And then in verse 8, Bilhah gives birth to another son that Rachel decides, let's name him Naphtali or Naphtali, which means my wrestling and here's the explanation. With great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. We'll see this idea of prevailing with another name change later on. This is not the kind of prevailing that, that we're supposed to be pursuing. Again, do you see Leah's naming originally was self-centered, and now Rachel's naming is self-centered too? God's judging me. I'm going to win. My wrestlings have prevailed. I'm catching up. I'm halfway there. Well, as pride from below starts trying to eke its way up so it can be pride from above again, then Rachel's pride from above, not wanting to go down to pride from below, pride either way, any angle, she's like, well, guess what, little sister? Two can play that game because I have a handmaid too. So, honey, 
why don't you marry my handmaid? I mean, it's interesting. Jacob is now becoming a pawn in this competition between these two sisters. And so now take Zilpah and raise up seed on my side of the ledger because it's only four to two and I want to increase, I want to outdistance my sister. Okay. So two more children come. Gad is born in verse 11. Gad means good fortune. It's also a word play on the Hebrew words for troop or fortune. And why name him that? Because as Leah finds, a troop cometh. Oh yeah, baby. We're now up five to two. We're getting a whole troop here that's going to trump yours. Then verse 13, Asher is born, which means happy or blessed. And again, from Leah's standpoint, happy am I for the daughters will call me blessed. Oh, it seemed like her good moment lasted through Jacob's early years until the competition began again. And now we're falling back into old ways. Now we're now at six to two. Uh, six on Leah's side, two on Rachel's side. And this is where it starts to get a little weird. Okay, so bear with me on this one. From 14 to 16, Reuben is out harvesting wheat. Now remember, he's the oldest son. And now there's a bunch of younger siblings or half-siblings that have been born as well. So he's out there harvesting and he finds some mandrakes, which is this plant, fairly rare. So he's excited that he found this and he brings it back to his mother, Leah. Now we need to know some, some cultural understandings here. Mandrakes were perceived as a possible aphrodisiac. They were perceived as helping to cure infertility. And so you can see why this would, especially if it's rare, would be such a precious commodity, especially when you're doing a family, in the middle of a family arms race. Well, Reuben comes back and gives his mother Leah these mandrakes, and all of a sudden, uh, Rachel's eyes light up and the jealousy kicks in again. Rachel begs her big sister for those mandrakes because that might be the only solution for me. And then Leah responds, is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband Wouldst thou take away my son's mandrakes also? Now, Rachel says in response, Well, therefore he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. Now, again, the, the plot thickens. The one that's already fertile has the key to, to greater fertility, according to their understanding of things. Well, the, the infertile one wants, wants those mandrakes. But she already has her husband's loyalties, Leah is bitter about that. So her thought is, oh, you've already taken my husband's heart. And now you want to take away these, these man, you, you want to take away the only thing I have on you, the ability to have children. No, I'm not going to e equal the playing field. Are you kidding? And then Rachel's all, okay, let me sweeten the deal then. I'll let you have what you want. I'll let you have my husband. Yes, who also happens to be yours, but you can go in unto him with the potential of even having more children. But if it gives me a chance to have some children of my own, then I'll even, it'll be worth it, even if you continue to outdistance me in the family arms race. Now, what's sad about this is that they're both using intimacy as a bargaining chip. And they're turning their husband into an object rather than an agent, which is interesting this objectification of a husband. 
and in a way, objectification of intimacy in general, because it's now a bargaining chip in the form of these mandrakes. Okay? We'll see that again in one of the skip-over chapters for this week, Genesis 34, that I'm not going to skip over, uh, because it's another brutal example of objectifying intimacy. We're starting to see this problem. Okay? We saw it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're seeing it among this family, even though it's within the bonds of marriage which should tell us something, that, that lust isn't lost in marriage, that the ob objectification of intimacy doesn't just take place outside of marriage, it can take place within it as well, and that's something we should be cautious of. But notice what happens in verse 16. It goes according to plan. Jacob came out of the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, Thou must come in unto me, for surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes, and he lay with her that night. I have hired thee? So worse than the objectification of intimacy, it's now the commodification of intimacy? Yikes, this is, we're walking on thin ice here. I've hired you tonight. Well, Leah, as a result, and this must have been multiple hirings because she ends up having two more children. She names the first Issachar, which means man of hire or recompense, which is twisted if we're thinking about Jacob was the one that became a man of hire. And the result of that was Issachar, a man of hire. The way that Leah explains it, God hath given me my hire because I have given my maiden to my husband. It's like, okay, the arms race is working out. I self-sacrificed enough to give my handmaid to my husband, and now God is recompensing me for that by giving me yet another child of my own. I now have five of my own, and now it's seven to two. Hmm, we're outpacing. Then yet another child comes to Leah from some later hire. She names her son Zebulun, which means exalted abode. But again, that's more about herself then it is some kind of, I'm, I'm connecting with God and, and stepping into his exalted abode. No, she explains it this way. God hath endowed me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. Forgotten is this praise of the God of Judah. And now she's fixated on Zebulun, as a, an exalted abode for her husband with her instead of with Rachel. Interesting. Every name tells a story here, and it's been a hard story so far. Well, verse 22 then has one of the most powerful, beautiful, generous, tenderly merciful phrases in Scripture. Because so far we've been worried about Leah. At least we were early on. We started seeing her compensatory blessings flow. We saw her pride from below turn to pride from above and then evaporate in a period of, of praise of God. Well, now that the, the tables have turned, our, our heart hopefully goes out to Rachel as she has wondered about, where are my blessings? And... Is there, are there any compensatory blessings for me? And so this poor woman, who has suffered through such a long period of barrenness, 
enough that, what are we at? 10 children have already been born? Six to Leah, two to, or four to Leah, and then two to Bilhah, and then two to Zilpah, and then two more to Leah. Wow, it's, it's, ten, it's eight to two, and you haven't given birth to any yourself? Think how Rachel is feeling here. And these next four words are as beautiful as could be. And God remembered Rachel. He remembered her. This same loving Lord, this same father of all the faithful, the same one who had come down to see Leah's loneliness, is now coming down to to mourn with those that mourn and suffer through Rachel's barrenness with her and remember her to the point of giving her the blessing she had always wanted most. He remembered Rachel. God hearkened to her. He opened her womb. He hearkened to her? So this is something she must have been praying for for a long, long time. In a moment of frustration, she'd lashed out at her husband. Oh, who am I? Am I God to thee? I can't take his place. Oh, I guess I'm, I'm mourning to the wrong person. And I will mourn to my God and pray that he might hearken. Well, he did. It was a beautiful, beautiful uh, conference talk by Spencer J. Condy years ago where he said, In this age of one-hour dry cleaning and one-minute fast food franchises, it may at times seem to us as though a loving Heavenly Father has misplaced our precious promises, or he has put them on hold or filed them under the wrong name. Such were the feelings of Rachel. But with the passage of time, we encounter four of the most beautiful words in Holy Writ. And God remembered Rachel. When heaven's promises sometimes seem afar off, I pray that each of us will embrace these exceeding great and precious promises and never let go. And just as God remembered Rachel, God will remember you. I remember that talk well because an amazing couple, really close friends of ours in Tennessee, were suffering through a long period of infertility themselves and praying and hoping and, and wishing and waiting, hoping against hope. That talk came as such a blessing, especially to her, this mother yet to be, who now is a mother indeed, remembered by God. And whether the physical, the tangible evidence of that memory comes in this life or the next, I pray that you can all know and feel that you are being remembered by a God who never forgot you in the first place. I pray the Spirit confirms that to each of you. Like I said, whether or not there are more tangible proofs of that divine recollection. Well, verse 23, she, Rachel, conceived, finally, and bare a son, finally, and said, by way of naming, God hath taken away my reproach. Now, in verse 24, she named him Joseph, which is an interesting play on words. It means both to add and to take away. It's a word that includes one definition as well as its opposite definition. 
to add and to take away. And so the taking away was that phrase. God hath taken away my reproach. The add comes in another explanation. The Lord shall add to me another son. Now, is this, oh, looking back, at, he's technically given me two already through my handmaid, and now he has added another. Or in some way, perhaps unbeknownst even to her, is this prophetic that God will yet add to me another son, even beyond Joseph. Because by the end of today's chapters, Rachel does give birth to another son. Another is added, and that is Benjamin, son of my right hand. Unfortunately, in adding that child to the family, Rachel herself is taken away since she dies in childbirth, which would be tragic for Jacob, for Joseph, for Benjamin, who never knew his mother. Oh, there's heartache and heartbreak throughout these stories because they're real, about real people uh, teaching us real lessons since we're real people too. Now, verse 25 it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away, that I may go into mine own place, to my country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served thee, and let me go. For thou knowest my service which I have done thee. It's interesting that only after Rachel has a son does Jacob finally feel like now we can return to our land of promise. The promised son through the promised wife, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, a covenant son has come in Joseph, and now we can return to our promised land. So, father-in-law, at least 14 years have passed since even to ask to leave, he would have had to pay that seven years of dowry for, for Rachel's hand, but let me go. Now, 27, Laban says to, to Jacob, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. I love that statement. It's like, actually, uh, is there any way you can stay a little longer? I know the 14 years are up and you don't owe me anything, but man, I owe you something or I owe your God something because God has blessed me for thy sake. I know that from personal experience. I hope our neighbors can say that if we ever move. <laughs> I hope our ward would feel that if, if we were to move out of it. We're not planning on it. We love where we live. But it's interesting. I hope people can say, co-workers and friends and, and neighbors and, and fellow ward members, whomever you know, I hope they, can, they have learned by personal experience that your presence is a present to them. That your, your presence is a gift from God in their lives. That's the way it was for Jacob toward Laban. Now, knowing how much Jacob's labor had blessed himself, Laban wants Jacob to stay around as, as long as possible. Okay, So he comes up with this plan and he says, well, stick around and, and, and keep serving me and let's make it worth your while. I mean, I hope that these last 14 years were worth your while. I mean, you look at your family now. I mean, this is starting to seem almost stars and, and sand-like. huh? But Laban asked Jacob, what would it take for you to stay? And Jacob says, well, all this time I've been work paying off my debt, giving you a dowry for your daughters. I have posterity, but not prosperity yet. Um, could I keep working for you and 
and you could pay me in sheep and goats and rams and and flocks and herds, which is what I've been doing all this time to, to support you. And Laban is totally fine with that. That stands to reason. You built my flocks and herds, start building your own. Now here's the plan. Verse 31, Laban says, what shall I give thee? And Jacob says, thou shalt not give me anything. Now that's going to be important. Uh, and keep it in the back of your mind because the way it's described here in Genesis 30 is, is a little confusing. I'll try to sum it up. Uh, but he basically says, no, you don't have to give me anything. I'll start totally from scratch. Uh, I want to be so far above board or above reproach that you can't try to pull the wool from uh, over my eyes or pull the rug from under my feet uh, because we're going to start totally on your side of things. Okay, So don't give me anything. And then here's how the plan is going to come forth. This goes from verse 32 to 36. Step one was we're going to separate out Laban's flocks by color. Some are going to be striped and spotted and speckled, and others are going to be more of a solid color. Now, according to a bunch of, of commentaries, uh, at that time period or in that part of the world, the solid color was much more common. And the, the way it's described here, the speckled or the ring straked, the spotted are more rare. And again, giving uh, Laban the benefit of any doubt and giving him, putting himself, Jacob's putting himself in the worst possible situation. I'm not asking you to give me anything to start. What we're going to do, step one, is we're going to separate out the flocks. Uh, the solid colors versus the, the striped and speckled. Now, take all of the striped and speckled and give them to your own sons. This is where it gets a little confusing in the text, but it seems that that's step two. Give those to your sons uh, so that those are there uh, for them. And that's where their prosperity will come to feed their posterity. Okay. So I still don't have anything because that's what I, I, I said. I'm not asking you to give me a single thing, but take those out. And now I'm just responsible for your flocks, father-in-law. Your sons are old enough to handle their own and yours will be all of the solid color. Now, starting with nothing, we're going to see what happens in the next several years, however long I work for you, as far as the offspring of your flocks. And how's this sound for way of, by way of payment? If these solid co colored animals give birth to solid colored animals, you keep them. And if the solid colored animals give birth to speckled and spotted animals, I keep those. So I'll, do, I'll take the more rare and you can take the more common. I'll take the short end of the stick. And in fact, I'll separate out the herds so that you don't think this is some, I mean, I don't know if this is rudimentary, rudimentary genetics on his part. It's like, I mean, it seems like a spotted would come from a spotted more likely than it would come from a, a, a solid. So we'll, we'll separate it out. And Laban, when he, get, when he gets in, wraps his head around this, he's like, man, you're setting me up for success and yourself up for failure. This is win-win for me. Sounds awesome. And so he sends away those speckled flocks with his sons and separates them by three days journey just to make sure there's no intermingling uh, that, would, that would decrease the, the potential of, his, of him getting rich instead of his, his son-in-law. Well, that's how they set it up and, and they move according to that plan. As Laban says in verse 34, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. It's like, uh, yeah, you, you figure? I mean, you've got a fine grasp of the obvious, Laban. Uh, this deal is totally in your favor. In some ways, this reminds me of Abraham and Lot. Oh, just take whichever side you want. So, okay, I'll take the good one. And here's Laban like, yeah, I'll take the good one. Which again makes Jacob into an Abraham 
which is what we're trying to do all along. But I also love what Jacob said one verse earlier. Verse 33, so shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come. Now that to me is one of the most important phrases in that in this tricky passage about raising the next generation of flocks and herds. My righteousness will answer for me. I'm not going to put any trust in the arm of flesh. I'm going to put it all in the arm of God. Since from my perspective, that's the only way I'm going to get paid anything. It's going to have to be almost a miracle birth every time that solid colored animals will give birth to speckled ones. But I believe in God and I believe in myself. I believe in my righteousness and I trust the God of my father and the God of my grandfather to come through for me. I won't owe you anything, Laban. I will only owe God. Now, if you thought that part was weird, it gets even weirder by the end of the chapter. Okay? And I'll sum this up quickly. Now, you could call this superstition if you want. You could call this folk belief. It's a little kinder than superstition. You could call this family tradition. You could call this received wisdom or had the furthest advances of science uh, in, in the late Bronze Age or whenever this was. Uh, it, it's a little strange because what ends up happening, here's Jacob who's put himself in, in the worst possible situation, right? Everything's stacked against him. The, all the cards are in Laban's favor. And so trusting in God, but also realizing, I think faith without works is dead and God probably expects me to do something about this. And I believe oh, that God can work miracles but he wants a helping hand. This is what he does. Jacob takes uh, some tree branches. He calls them rods. So picture like a stick, a branch from a tree. And most of the trees that are described here are, have dark bark. And then he, he starts scraping some of the bark. He peels some away to make the, the rods, to make these branches look speckled or spotted or, or striped. And then as Laban's flocks and herds come to water, to the trough, uh, again, it sounds really weird, but Jacob takes those speckled, striped, uh, spotted rods, branches, and puts them in the trough with the water. And the, again, the superstition or the perceived, uh, the received wisdom or the, the common assumption of the day was whatever these animals are looking at when they conceive, that's probably what they're their offspring are going to look like. And so here's, here's Jacob going, okay, yeah, I need a miracle, God. I need a miracle. And if this helps out in any way, I'll do what kind of what we do with our folk tradition and, and these sheep and these goats, these herds, as they're looking at these striped and spotted sticks, then they hopefully will give birth to striped or spotted offspring. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Now, do I believe that that had anything to do with the, the sticks in, in, uh, in the trough? No. But do I believe it had anything to do with the miracles and blessings of God? You better believe it. This was a miracle of sorts. Now, if, if somebody needs something more tangible to exercise their faith in, a, in an unseeable, intangible, miraculous power of God, I'm okay with that. And God seems to be okay with that too. Uh, the blind man that Jesus gave sight to, 
I've asked my students in the past, what actually gave him the, the power to see? Was it the clay or the spittle or the water from the pool of Siloam? And obviously the answer is none of the above. Then why did Jesus use all of those, those tangible elements? Oh, maybe to give the blind man some sense that something was happening to him? Why do we partake of bread and water? We don't believe in transubstantiation after all. Oh, but it does give us something to focus our faith on. Why do we use consecrated oil when blessings can be given without it? Oh, there's a symbol to help ground our belief. Could the brother of Jared ask God to illuminate the inside of those barges without the help of 16 stones? Sure. But it was something tangible they could put their hands on, so to speak, right? It's amazing how often God will give us, call them what you will, crutches to faith, I don't know, grounds for belief, that's probably a kinder phrase, something to just help us focus on things that are coming from, oh, as gifts from an invisible hand. Maybe we put it that way. Either way, the chapter ends. The man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maidservants and men servants and camels and asses. In other words, God blessed him. As with so many areas of life, there's a set of contraries to prove here. How much do I exercise my agency? And how much do I stand still to see the salvation of God. How much, flip it around, how much do I trust God to perform these miracles? And how much do I do everything within my power, even to my limited understanding, to the point that to a more sophisticated mind, we would look back and go, you're doing what? And even in, to us, uh, we sophisticated 21st century uh, people, it's still nothing compared to what God is looking and his ways are so much higher than ours. But, oh, you think that's how, oh, okay. I'll take it. Do your very best efforts. Social media is going to sweep the earth as a flood. Sure, that's going to help. Do everything you can. The miracles of technology will gather Israel. Well, yeah, it helps. It's really going to come from the miracles of God, but do everything within your power. Work to the limits of your technology and your tradition, to the, the far reaches of your science, but exercise faith in equally extensive directions. Okay? You will increase exceedingly as a result. So such was the case with Jacob. Now, chapter 31 then proceeds, and there's some strange things in 31 too. This is the Old Testament, right? Buckle up for it. But chapter 31 is where Jacob and Laban finally part ways. You see it in verse 1, he heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's hath he gotten all this glory. Now again, part of me is like, you sons, be quiet. What, where, what have you been doing all these years anyway? As Jacob seems to be the one that's doing all the work. In fact, rewind even earlier, and how come it's Rachel taking the flocks out to get the water at the well? What have you been doing? Sitting home doing nothing? I, I, I don't know enough about Laban's sons, but I'm not that impressed. We'll just put it that way. And here, even less impressive, they accuse Jacob of theft. He's taken away what belonged to our fathers. Whatever. He started with nothing, asked your father for nothing, and then just let the blessings of God flow. I'll let God be the judge of me and you, or me and your father. And we'll see that over and over. I'm, I'm not trying to pit myself against you. I'm not trying to take anything that isn't my own. 
I'm leaving all of this in the hands of God. But Laban's sons are still blaming Jacob for their, for taking away their glory. Nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, whatever glory they had was thanks to Jacob's work. God had blessed the family for Jacob's sake. These sons had flocks of their own simply because Jacob divided some out from their father to give to them. He's trying to provide for everybody here, but also hoping that God will provide for himself, which he does. Verse 2, Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. Here's a good eye for nonverbal communication. I mean, he's saying nice things, and we'll see him still say nice things in this chapter, mingled with some not-so-nice things. But there's something different about your dad. I don't know what it is. I tried to set it up all in his favor. Just God righted the wrongs. God blessed us more than he blessed your father. But dad is starting to take this personally. There's envy. We saw it in the humanity between the, the sisters already. Verse 3, the Lord says to Jacob then, in the midst of all of this, return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee, just like I promised back when I met you at the ladder in 28. And so Jacob begins to explain this move to his wives, since he's now going to uproot them and pull them away from their ancestral homeland, from the family that they grew up with and the land that they grew up knowing. Now, this is interesting advice for anyone that is, well, I'll put this, anyone that finds themselves in a position where they have to break off a relationship or sever a friendship. These, this is hard. Uh, but the situation that they find themselves in, and God had told them, it's time for you to go back. But as Jacob is trying to explain things to his wives, because he knows this is going to be harder for them than it is for him. Uh, you're leaving flesh and blood here. I know we're flesh and bones, but it's different. How am I going to explain this? And so as I was studying that, the, these verses this week and trying to make sense of some kind of application, is there anything relatable here for anyone who's in a toxic friendship? Uh, if you know any emotional vampires that truly are sucking you dry and you have, even, even to the point of like divorce, if it comes to that, what principles could we find in, this, in these passages that might help guide our decision of, do I stick this out? Do I hope for better days? Or am I at a point where, where even God is telling me it's time to leave this difficult situation? As much of a heartbreak as it's going to be, okay? And I pray that, that again, that we're not looking for excuses here, but I hope that, that the Lord, uh, that the Holy Ghost will open the eyes of our understanding through these words to see can this help guide my decisions in really difficult relationships? Okay, let's see, let's see where the Spirit takes us. Verse 4, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field unto his flock. So there we see him counseling with others who really know the situation well themselves. Okay, they're involved in it. And whether or not you have someone involved in the situation to talk to, at least someone who understands it as well as anybody could, what do you think? Are we justified in this? Is it time? What, what should we do here? Notice, by the way, I do love the, the symbolism here of he called them to the field and unto the flock. Because again, if we're headed back to the promised land to fulfill our covenant responsibilities, he is calling them to the flocks and to the fields. 
into the field of labor, the field of service, the mission field, we call it, in order to, to water the flocks, right? To get the living water to the end of every row. That's what the house of, of Israel is supposed to do. That's what the seed of Abraham is called to accomplish. So in some ways, that might be part of the advice that we're seeking from people who know us and our situation well. Is, is the friendship or the relationship that I'm in conducive to the covenant or is it keeping me from fulfilling it and is it has it reached the point where I I really I mean sometimes we can still keep our covenant even if our partner isn't or we can still fulfill our life's work even when you wished it had been a dual work and it when it wasn't but in this case it's is it come to a a point where where we have to make a more drastic decision well verse 5 he said unto them I see your father's countenance. It is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. So how hard are we trying to perceive the other person's attitudes? Yes, their actions, but also their attitudes. Is there something about their entire approach to you? Their, their whole countenance is against you. The way they look at you, the way they, they perceive you, the way they treat you. And if it gets to a point where there's nothing I can do to change that countenance. And through it all, the God of my father hath been with me. This is tricky, but you, it was, we see in the New Testament, what God has joined, let not man put asunder in the context of divorce. In other words, if God was a part of the relationship, then God has to be part of the dissolving of the relationship. And you better be turning to him for guidance in these matters. Is the God of your father with you in making this decision? Is he the one telling you it's time to leave and go to the promised land? Or is he saying, no, you need to stay? Kind of like what he had said to Hagar. No, you need to go back and work these things out with with Sarah. It's not cut and run. Okay. It's interesting to see examples of both. And God might say to leave. God might say to stay. You got to go with God. Now, verse six, you know that with all my power, I have served your father. So I haven't been in the wrong here. I've, I've tried to be in the right. I have given and given and given. I've served. I've forgiven. I've, I've blessed. I've tried to lift. I think I'm at a point though, that it's not making any difference. And I wonder, is it starting to shift where it's now going to make a negative difference upon me? In verse 7, he says, Your father hath deceived me. He's changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. So here Jacob recognizes the guilt of the other party. He realizes what he's done to try to, to navigate that and work through it, but he also acknowledges what he's up against. He... It's interesting because here he sees, we see he does have boundaries and that's a difficult balance to strike too. At what point does your mercy become codependence? At what point does your long suffering become enabling the other party and, and your virtue ends up just underwriting your victimization and that's not right. So here you sense Jacob wrestling with Leah and Rachel. Is it is, is it is enough enough? And is it time for me to put up a boundary of self-protection? I've tried to maintain, I've tried to keep it open all these years in hopes that we can resolve things. Or 
improve things. Technically, they're part, they're under the Abrahamic, they could be under the Abrahamic covenant too, if they would just come into it. What do we do? In verse 8 and 9, he reviews what he tried to do from the start. I tried to put it all, the benefits on your dad's side, uh, the, the striped and the speckled and everything, and I put myself in the worst possible situation. I, I was willing to take the, the short end of the stick all of these years. Uh, so this isn't what I've been seeking from the beginning, believe me. I haven't been looking for excuses or, or reasons to get out. I've been, trying to, I've been looking for reasons to make this work. It just, it, it isn't. Then 10 through 13, he even talks about a dream that he has. Well, he knew that God would multiply his own flocks and be a blessing to him. Actually, sounds a lot like Jacob's, excuse me, Joseph's dreams that we'll study next week. That God is prospering me instead of prospering the others. But in that same dream, the Lord says to Jacob, I'm blessing you, for I have seen all that Laban doeth unto thee. Hmm. So it's not just, it isn't just visible to me. He's now checking with Rachel and Leah. Is it visible to you? He's now checking with God. Is it visible to you? Are we all seeing the same countenance here? Are we all coming into agreement on what we should do from here? I mean, there's that amazing passage in DNC 64 about forgiveness, where it says that we're supposed to forgive everybody. Okay, we should. But then he says, you ought to say within your heart, let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds. In other words, I'm not going to be the judge, the sole judge here. I'm going to let God judge and I'll let him deal with the other person. If that person deserves justice or, uh, or condemnation, I'll let God provide it. I'm not going to do it myself. If I deserve mercy, I'll let God provide that to me too. I'll let him take care of me. I'll let him take care of the other person. And that's exactly what's been happening for the last six years as we're about to see. I do think it's time to go though. And I believe God is reassuring me that that's exactly the path I should take. Verse 13, the Lord continues through this dream. I am the God of Bethel. Remember? where thou anointest the pillar, where thou vowest a vow unto me, now arise, get thee out from this land, return unto the land of thy kindred. Evidently, God didn't just remember Rachel. God remembered Jacob. He remembered Jacob's promise. He remembered Jacob's ladder. The same promise I made to you then, I'm reminding you of now. I told you I'd be with you. I told you I'd bring you back. I told you I would remain to do all that I had promised. Well, I've been fulfilling the promise of posterity. Are you ready to go back so I can fulfill the promise of promised land? And from there to be able to get the, your, this large family involved with the fields and the flocks so that the blessings of priesthood could bless all nations. It's time to go. So Jacob's ready to go. And so are Rachel and Leah. In 14 through 16, they respond, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? He hath sold us. He hath quite devoured also our money. For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours. That's our children's. Now then, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. Wow, there's, there's no love loss here between uh, these sisters and their father. They're feeling just as as misused as Jacob was. They're sensing, he's, he's treated us like strangers instead of like daughters. Uh, we're, 
everything you've been doing for him, some of that should be part of our inheritance too. And so if it blesses us, if it blesses our children, best of all, if it's what God says, I love how they ended that, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. And that's exactly what this family of faith is going to, going to do. So that what ends up happening, Jacob's family leaves and they don't tell Laban. They just pick up kind of cover of darkness and like, we're out of here. Because I don't know what Laban's going to do if we were sit, just kind of sit back and discuss things with him. Again, this is the opposite of, the, of Hagar's escape. Nope, got to go back and deal with this. No, this is go. Just pick up and run. And that's exactly what they do. But before they go, and this is where this chapter gets a little weird, Rachel ends up stealing her father's images. That's how it's put in King James. These images would have been some kind of pagan idol, some kind of false god, which makes you wonder, well, what's Laban doing with it? Or even bigger question, why on earth would Rachel want to steal them? Now, there's a lot of possibilities here, and the scriptures don't explain it at all. So we kind of are left to, to guess at things. One possibility, is she doing it to spite her father? Like, they've stolen from us, they've devoured our money. Well, what can I take from him that he really values? I'll take that as payment. Maybe it's something like trickery on Rachel's part to, to counteract the trickery of her father's part. You, you stole my husband from me in, in swapping out Leah when I was the one that was supposed to marry Jacob first. So you pulled a switcheroo on me. Well, I'm going to pull a switcheroo on you. And I'm taking these household gods. There may have been something even more spiritual behind all this, where it's like, some of you already know this, there's an old apocryphal story of Abraham as a kid going around and like smashing idols back in his father's shop in, in, Haran, in Ur of the Chaldees uh, to say, what, what, they couldn't protect themselves? He leaves one idol unsmashed to be able to blame the other smashed idols on him. Like, he's the one that did it. And they all look at him like, you idiot. Quit, quit yanking our heel. Quit pulling our leg. Because we know that that idol couldn't have smashed the others. And he's like, well, then why do you worship gods that you know can't do anything? So I wonder if Rachel is, is pulling a similar trick where it's like, Dad, your, own, your gods can't protect themselves? That's not much of a god to, to worship. Your gods can be stolen? Hmm. Well, maybe it's worth stealing them from you in hopes that you wake up to the real God that you could be worshiping all along. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rather than the God of Terah and Nahor and Bethuel and Laban. There, are, there is a true God, and I'm only trying to wake you up to remove your loyalty to a false one. All kinds of possibilities there. But whatever it is, Laban realizes not only that his gods are missing, but that his kids and grandkids are too. And so he finds out that they're all, they've all taken off without saying a word, and he bolts after them. They had like a three-day head start, and he ends up catching up with them like seven days later. Okay? But one of those nights when he was in hot pursuit, he has a dream. Remember, uh, Jacob's had a dream to reassure him it's time to go. Well, the same source now gives some information to Laban. And in his dream, God says to him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, don't make any promises. There's good. Don't make any threats. That's bad. Just let him be. Honor his agency. 
he's doing the right thing here because you've been doing the wrong thing, Laban. So leave him alone. So he goes into this, finally catches up, but he knows down deep, I'm in the wrong, Jacob's in the right, and I have to let this proceed according to their plan. Now, once he gets there, he has a conversation with Jacob. And this is the flip side of the lesson that we just were discussing about at what point is it, impo- is it necessary to sever toxic relationships. Jacob had that conversation with Rachel and Leah. Well, now he's having a conversation with the source of the toxicity. Uh, but it teaches similar lessons that I think are worth, uh, worth weighing in on. And there's one other thing I think is worth wrestling with here. And that's based on what Laban says to Jacob as Jacob is leaving. Because sometimes we're the party that the other person is walking away from. And how are we going to respond in that kind of situation? This might be true of a friend that leaves us or a spouse that has come to the end of their rope and and asks for a divorce. It might even be someone who chooses to leave the church. And you're you've been you haven't been a bad Laban in this situation, but but they choose to leave. And how will I respond? I think it's interesting sometimes that we end up wanting to say something good or something bad to them in hopes that they'll change their mind. And here the Lord is saying, nope, no good, no bad. Let this thing proceed and we'll see where it goes. Now there's limits to that too. We'll see when we get to the story of Samuel. Okay, uh, but, but I just want us to think and ponder. I'm looking for application here and relevance. What do we do when someone is leaving us? And what, what should we or what should we not do? I mean, you think about what Joseph Smith says in uh, Joseph Smith History, that my friends, or at least those who should have been my friends, and if they thought me deluded, they should have worked with me in a proper and affectionate manner to reclaim me. I love that passage. When I think about people leaving the church, too often we want to get that last word in or that last dig so that we feel that we've been right all along. We want them to know just how wrong they are to walk away from us. And from Joseph's perspective, if you thought I was wrong, you had a weird way of, of correcting me. If you wanted me to come back, that, the way you treated me on my departure made it all the less likely that I would return. You treated me like, me like a jerk. You should have been my friend. You should have treated me in a proper and affectionate manner. That's the only hope you ever have to reclaim me. And I think the same would be said of of Laban here. So let's look for some lessons. Verse 26, he says to them, What hast thou done that thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? Now there's his first mistake. There's a first, well, God just said, don't speak evil. Well, he just did. Uh, and it's a false accusation, and it's jumping to conclusions. No, your daughters, I didn't take them away like captives taken with a sword. They, I discussed it with them, and they, they were just as eager to leave as I was. You've been the one mistreating them, not me. So Laban, the, there's your first error. Then 27 and 28, he says, Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me, and didst not tell me? that I might have sent thee away with mirth and with songs, with tabret, with harp, and hast not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now that's interesting, because there he's saying, no, 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 why did you do that? Maybe he just caught himself like, oh, I just said something bad. So I, I, I better balance that out with something good. I, if you would have told me, dear son-in-law, we could have had a, a party. 
a going away party. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give my sons and daughters, my grandchildren, just a fatherly kiss. I gave you one the first day I met you. I wanted to give you one on, on your way out. That's how much I care. Well, I really wonder, is that really how you would have responded? Again, what you first said hmm, seems to call into question what you just said next. I've talked with some who have left the church and one big struggle they have is, oh, there's all kinds of rejoicing when people join the church. Nobody knows what to do when people leave it. I talked to one ex-bishop and just said to him, if no one else has thanked you, I'm sure they did during those days, but even now that you've left the church, can I thank you once again for all the service you rendered to the people in your neighborhood? Even if you don't consider it your ward anymore, those were your neighbors and you blessed them. You sacrificed for them, you served them, and, and we owe you our gratitude for that. Uh, how can we support you in your next leg of the journey? I, I'm not saying we throw departure parties, but to let people leave in love, I think will allow for a return far better than than, like I said, getting the last word in edgewise or making false accusations or calling them into question as far as their, their were you ever faithful? Did you ever know? Any of those kinds of things. Okay. How about verse 28? Laban says to Jacob, thou hast done foolishly in so doing. Again, do we just straight up condemn the other person's choice? This is the dumbest thing you could ever do. This is a foolish decision. We can let people know where we stand without having to malign them. We can stand for our perspective without ridiculing theirs. And again, I think that allows for, for the parent of any prodigal, we have to be very careful with how we approach things in hopes that when that child comes to himself, as the prodigal in the story does, his thoughts and feelings of home are positive. We can help with that. Laban is not helping with that. Verse 29, he says, It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spake unto me yesternight, saying, Take thou heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, how's that for a veiled threat? Well, it isn't even very well veiled. How's that for passive-aggressive? Uh, now, I'm, I, could, I could stand in the way of this. I could put my foot down. I could stop you. I could hurt. I could hurt you on your way out. But it's not the right thing to do. I know that. I'm going to be better than that. I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to, be, I'm going to rise above that since that's what God expects of me. I mean, can you feel the condescension? Can you feel the, the pride from above that's probably only going to be responded to with, or answered with pride from below? I mean, that's, that is an interesting one. And then verse 30, so interesting. And now, though thou wouldst needs be gone, because thou sore longest after thy father's house, fine. Yet wherefore hast thou stolen my gods? And maybe that's the real question all along. I mean, A, there's another false accusation. You stole them when Jacob had nothing to do with that. But also this, is that really what this has been about? Dear dad, you weren't so worried about you didn't get to say goodbye. 
but you've lost something. You've lost your chance to, to milk me for all I'm worth. You can no longer take advantage of me. But were you after something self-serving? And how dare they take away my gods? That's what I'm after. I do worry, again, when people leave us, are we, are we, I'll put it this way. Elder uh, Hales, Robert E. Hales said once in an amazing talk called Christian Courage, he said, when somebody attacks you and says you're not a Christian, the worst thing you could do is to prove them right by the way you respond. In other words, to be completely un-Christ-like in your response. They're like, yep, told you, they're not Christian because that definitely was not Christ-like behavior. Well, in a similar way, are we justifying people's departure in the way we respond to their decision to depart? Are we giving people increased fodder, so to speak, or, or further justification like, yep, leaving the church was the best thing I ever could have done because look at the way they really are. Now the real colors, the real countenance is shining through. Or do we give people cause to pause on their way out? Almost buyers, or in this case, sellers remorse. Wow, they were way kinder than I thought they would be. They care about me. Not just about their congregation. Wow, maybe I did misjudge them. That might be the best possible thing in terms of planting seeds of doubt of their doubts. So that if they do, or when they do come to themselves, yeah, they were kind on my way out. I bet they'll be just as kind on my way back home. And we'll see that that's exactly the case uh, from a different angle, from Esau's angle. Okay, Great stories all coming, coming together in this. I love it. Well, let's push through the rest of this chapter. Verse 31, Jacob answers and says to Laban, I was afraid. And it wasn't the awe-filled fear of God. It was straight up, I was just afraid of you. For I said, peradventure thou wouldst take by force thy daughters from me. Now that's an interesting one. He didn't say any of that before. But now he's fully open and saying, well, Dad, here's, you want the real story? This might be hard for you to hear, but I was scared of you. I thought you might take your daughters back and I would lose the family I had worked so long and that I love so much. What's interesting there is sometimes people on their way out let us know that they've been afraid to tell us what they really feel for a long time. And now in some ways it's too late because they've already made the decision. They're seven days out of town, so to speak. Whereas if we... I feel that sometimes when there's loved ones that I've been close to that decide to leave and it surprises me. And I'm like, wait, I answer gospel questions for a living. How come you didn't ask me any? Were you afraid of how I would treat you or how I would react? Because that says something more about me than it does about you. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I ever gave you any impression that you couldn't talk to me about your struggles or your fears or your doubts or your concerns. I, I'm sorry you didn't feel like you could trust me with what you're going through or how you really feel or who you really are. Don't be afraid. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I'll give liberally. I won't upbraid. You see what God is doing there? He's trying to reassure any questioner. Don't flee in fear. 
Don't turn away because you're nervous of what I'll think or how I'll react to the real situation. No upbraiding, liberal giving, just come and ask. Come and tell. Come and confess. Whatever it might be, don't be afraid of me. Now, verse 32, Jacob responds in an interesting way. He's probably spent so much time giving Laban the benefit of the doubt that he even goes beyond the necessary in doing it again here. He says this in 32, With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live. Before our brethren, discern thou what is thine with me, and take it to thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. Now, careful, don't be overconfident that you know exactly what's going on on your side. Don't be overconfident. This is for those that are leaving. Don't be too sure that you are completely blameless. And that's something worth wrestling with too. It's a Lord is it I kind of moment that both sides should be having. Laban should be wondering, what have I done to cause these problems? And Jacob should be a little less sure that there's no guilt within his side of the family either because his precious Rachel is the guilty party and he basically just said you can kill whoever uh, committed the crime because I'm sure that none of us did I, I I'm totally justified in my departure mm, okay. you see what I'm trying to get at earlier it was like I'm 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 wondering what do you think uh, Leah and Rachel what do you think God are we justified in this and now he's so sure of himself it's like he overcorrected uh, no death penalty if you find anything wrong on my part, careful, you just signed your own death warrant. Well, this is another place where the story gets a little weird. Uh, Laban starts searching all of the tents. He searches Jacob's tent, and Leah's tent, and all the, the, everyone's tent gets to Rachel's tent. And she's sitting there, probably looking really nervous, like, uh-oh, I heard what dad's looking for, and I heard what, what Jacob just said. Well, it, she's hidden these household gods, her father's household gods, in the, the saddlebags of the, of the camels. And she's sitting on them as dad comes in, rifling through all of her stuff, finding nothing. Now, I don't know if this is true or false. Let's give Rachel the benefit of the doubt, okay? But she does say to her father, sorry, I can't get up, dad, and help you look. Uh, but it's, the, the way she puts it, the custom of women is upon me which is a nice way of saying I'm menstruating. It's that time of the month for me, and, and so I can't get up. Later, Jewish tradition would say, or Jewish uh, purity laws would say, well, you, can't, you shouldn't touch me or anything I've been touching because that's ceremonially impure because of this issue of blood, okay? So don't, don't, don't get close. Now, if that's true, then she was being honest although not being fully transparent. If it's false, she's protecting her life and just coming up with a story to say, so, so dad doesn't get, make her get up and look. Either way, she, she's off the hook. And dad leaves unsuccessful. Meanwhile, verse 36, Jacob finally realizes, wait a minute, why am I giving you all the benefit of the doubt when you don't always deserve it? You've proven that for the last 20 years. So... What is my trespass, he says to him? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? What are you doing here? Why, why are you searching all this, all my stuff? You've treated me like a robber when I haven't been guilty of that. In fact, 37, 
Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, what hast thou found of all thy household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that they may judge betwixt us both. This is we're getting a little more heated in terms of divorce court or in terms of uh, someone trying to intervene between roommates that, that are ready to cancel the, the, the contract or friends that are, that are on the way out of each other's lives. Uh, what's my, what have I done wrong? Where's my sin? Where's my trespass? And where's all this stuff you say I stole? Best case scenario, he is just saying, let, let God judge. What have you found? Lord, is it I? Maybe in part, but not all part. So I'll let you, I'll let our brethren, your brethren, judge between us. Bring out the evidence. I'm not afraid to be tried. Verse 38, this 20 years have I been with thee. So speaking of evidence, thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young. The rams of thy flock have I not eaten. In other words, I have 20 years of evidence that your property is safe with me. Uh, during lambing season, I was always out there in the fields, keeping watch over your flocks by night, even, to make sure that they gave birth and survived the experience. I didn't eat your rams on a hungry night out in the fields and just chalk it up to some, some beast of prey. No, your, your belongings, your household stuff was always safe in my hands. Could I say the same of you? Verse 39, that which was torn of beasts, I brought not unto thee. I bear the loss of it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. In other words, I absorbed all your losses. I was willing to always take the short end of the stick. Can you say the same? Again, when we're in difficult situations as far as relationships are concerned, what, what evidence is there of all you've tried to do? In verse 40, Thus I was, in the day the drought consumed me, the frost by night, my sleep departed from mine eyes. I suffered in silence for a long, long time. I endured adverse conditions and tried to make the most of it. I did everything I could for your sake and for our sake to try to maintain the relationship. But, verse 41, Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters, six years for thy cattle. Thou hast changed my wages ten times. So we both have long track records. And I have all kinds of exhibits, A through Z, on how I've tried to help, and I have, well, at least 10 exhibits of you trying to change things to make it more favorable to you rather than to me. Finally, verse 42, accept the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, since you're connected to him a little more closely, your brother-in-law. Without all that, if that had not been with me, Surely thou hadst sent me away now empty. God hath seen mine affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesternight. In other words, dear father-in-law, I couldn't trust you, but I trusted God. And God has come through for me. He has blessed me abundantly. He even blessed you abundantly because of me. 
How's that for righteousness leavening the lump? This would have been a good family to be in Sodom and save everybody. Well, I've been saving you, but it's time to go. And God himself, who reassured me, also rebuked, rebuked you. So I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know. It's just time to act on it. God has judged us both, and I trust him. Well, at that point, Laban realizes, you're right, and I've been wrong. And so let's make a covenant together. They set up a stone as a pillar. That's, we should be used to that by now. They put a bunch of other rocks around it as a heap. And then they eat there together, which I think is interesting. They call it the heap of witness. Another name for this heap or this pillar they called the lookout point, saying the Lord is going to watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. So it is a heap of witness, a big pile of promises, and it is a lookout point. This is a commemoration. Remember, Jacob did that at Jacob's ladder to remember the promises of God. Well, now Jacob and Laban are making a similar pillared promise, a similar heap of witness, a lookout point to, will you be faithful to the covenant even when we are out of of earshot and out of lines of sight. Will you keep this? Again, I love, we talked about it a few weeks ago with Abraham. If altars are a mini mountain of the Lord that we set up, kind of, again, ground bedrock that we're bringing closer to God, well, here's the same idea. A pile of promises standing as witness that we will be true to our word. This is solid stone. And the stone will not decay, neither will my word to you. You can bank on it. You can ground yourself in it. Even the idea of them eating together. That would have required a sacrifice mm, at this altar. A shared meal, some kind of communion with each other. To think of even animal sacrifice as a shared meal with God. That I'm offering something. He's accepting it. We are communing together. We're sharing in this sacrificial meal together. There's Last Supper. There's a sacrament. Powerful images here. Then 52, they say, this heap be witness. This pillar be witness. I will not pass over this heap to thee, and thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. In other words, covenants also draw lines we will not cross. This is not just a solitary mini mountain of the Lord. This is a mountain range. And I'll stay on my side and you can stay on yours. As far as harm is concerned, I will not cross this line to your detriment. 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge betwixt us. And Jacob swear by the fear of his father, Isaac. It's like I'll swear on my father's grave. I'll swear on my father's covenant. 54, then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount, called his brethren to eat bread, and they did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. And early in the morning, Laban rose up, kissed his sons and his daughters, just like he'd intended, and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned unto his place. Well, you got your grandfatherly kiss after all. But we are heading home to the promised land, to the place of covenant. Now, we're going to see that in the next few chapters, and I'll try to be brief here. But 32, Jacob, 
He just had this experience. They cut the ties and it's now to retie them, rebind himself to God in this next chapter. So verse 1 and 2, Jacob went on his way. The angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. Oh, here's the Lord's army. That's what host entails. This is a military escort that we're getting to bring us back into our promised land. God will protect us. And that's important because of what you see in the next verse, verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. There's Harry, Seir, and Red, Edom. We, to get back to our parents, I've got to go through my brother first. To get back into, the, into Canaan, I have to pass through Edom. And, whoa, I could, I could use a military escort. I could use the Lord of hosts. And he sends these messengers ahead to kind of gauge his brother's feelings. Mom originally said, stay there for a few days until your brother's anger has passed. Well, I've been gone for 20 years. I hope his anger has passed by now. Verse 4, he commanded his servants, thus shall ye speak unto my Lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus. Now notice how he's setting this up. I know I'm the birthright, I've gotten the blessing, but I'm going to turn those tables and come from a very low angle here. Esau, you're my Lord. And who am I? I'm Jacob, thy servant. Older shall serve the younger. Well, I'm willing to, to reverse it again. The explanation goes on. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and manservants and women servants. I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. Now, notice this kind of language as he's thinking of reuniting with this older brother he has offended. I pray that I can find grace in thy sight. Maybe that's why he's talking about all this prosperity that he's received, because that's evidence that God has blessed him. You haven't seen what I've been trying to do and what I've trying to become these last 20 years. God has been kind to me because I've been trying to do right by him. I want to do right by you, older brother. Now, verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob. They went, they told him, they come back. And they say, we came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and 400 men with him. Now, I don't know if they actually got to share the message or just saw a man with an army of 400 approaching, and they're like, yeah, 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 we really need that Lord of hosts. And they turn tail and run back to Jacob and say, we got problems. And then those problems are on their way. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And again, this is the, the scary kind of fear. He divided the people that were with him, the flocks, the herds, the camels, into two bands and said, if Esau come to one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. So... I'm hoping at best case scenario, we have a 50% survival rate. And so let's split it and, and it's fight or flight, but I hope we survive this. In verse 9, Jacob says, and now he's praying, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord which says to me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Now, you see how he's setting up his prayer? He hasn't asked for what he's, what he's hoping for yet. But the setup is, you're the God of my father, Abraham, the God of my father, Isaac. I'm part of the family business. I'm part of the family tree. Please treat me the way you treated them. Not only that, you're the one that told me to return to my country. And I'm trying to be obedient. Please honor that obedience and clear any roadblocks on the path. 
He says, you said you would deal well with me. Please keep that promise because I'm scared to death of my brother. Now with all that background, now I'm ready to ask for what I, what I need. Actually, not yet. One more verse. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all the truth, other translations say faithfulness. So I'm not worthy of your mercy or your faithfulness, which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff, I passed over this Jordan and now I am become two bands. I left with nothing and now I'm returning with everything. Again, I stand all amazed all this grace that so freely you proffer me, I'm not worthy of the least of it. And yet you've given me the most of it. So he still hasn't asked for his blessing. Okay. He finally does in verse 11. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. It's not just me I'm worried about now. That's what drove me out of Canaan. But now that I come back, I'm worried about far more than just me. Esau has so many more people to take his anger out on. So deliver me. And then verse 12. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Again, he's saying, you said, you promised that I'd have sands of the seashore. Well, we're getting close. I've got 11 sons. Please, please bless us, preserve us, protect us. Well, he lodged there that same night, it says in verse 13. He took of that which came to his a present for Esau, his brother. 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their colts, 40 kine, 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, 10 foals. Now, that was a long list, but it was worth reading because that is a massive gift. When Abraham was trying to settle accounts with Abimelech and they agreed, and then he gave him seven extra ewe lambs as just kind of cherry on top. Well, again, do the math on this. First of all, Wow, did God prosper Jacob during those six years when he started from scratch. Talk about prosperity, but also talk about trying to preserve my posterity. I'll give up all of this if I don't have to sacrifice those others. I'm, I'm trying to win my brother's approval. I'm hoping to find grace in his sight. Now notice how he sets it all up. Verse 16, he delivered them into the hands of his servants every drove by themselves and said unto his servants, pass over before me and put a space betwixt drove and drove. In other words, this is not just going to be one massive kind of overwhelming gift. Each drove, each herd is big enough that it's, an, it's a sizable gift on its own. And if we split them up and send them with space in between, then instead of getting one massive gift, Esau is getting gift after gift after gift after gift, hoping to just bury him in blessings in hopes that it will soften his heart. These are al It's almost like waves of remorse in hoping that just chipping away at a potentially hardened heart will eventually soften it enough that he will accept me. In verse 17, he commanded the foremost 
so the first servant with the first flock, when Esau my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou? And whither goest thou? And whose are these before thee? This is what you shall say. They be thy servant Jacob's. Again, lowering Jacob in comparison to Esau. It is a present sent unto my Lord Esau. Again, elevating Esau at the expense of Jacob. And behold, also he is behind us. So eventually you're going to see him too. And I really hope this softens things. Then verse 19, so commanded he the second, the third, all that followed the droves, saying, on this manner shall you speak unto Esau when ye find him. And his plan is clearly laid out in verse 20. I will appease him with the present that goeth before me. And afterward I will see his face peradventure. In other words, maybe, just maybe, he will accept of me. You want to talk about a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. As evidenced by all these animals he is laying upon the altar. This is such a symbolic scene we're seeing before us. 21 then, so went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night, couldn't sleep, can't blame him, and took his two wives and his two women servants and his 11 sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. This is Jacob's crossing of the Rubicon. Remember when Caesar crosses and it's like, hey, this is the, the point of no return. I'm crossing and I'm now in the territory I hope that God will grant me. Sends his, his family across. He's, I just love this. Is, is he ready for this? Again, he can't sleep. We'll see what's about to happen uh, as, he, as he's praying and wrestling literally with God. Is he ready to enter the promised land? Is he ready to leave the temporal time of life in order to fully pursue the spiritual? Yeah, his time out in the world enriched him. Is he now ready to turn it all over to God? Not just that tenth he promised on the way out, but now a consecration of all he has to build God's kingdom now that he's coming back in. Is he ready to fully step into the covenant that he had already made before? The brook Jabbok. Are we ready to cross our Rubicon? Verse 24, that night Jacob went out by himself. Okay, He'd sent his wives and his sons ahead. He's still wrestling with this. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Now this sounds a lot like Enos as he spends all night and all day wrestling before the Lord. In Enos's case, it didn't say he wrestled with the Lord. It says he wrestled before him. So who's he wrestling with? Well, himself. His natural man, his past persona. I need to be better. I want, my soul hungers after the eternal life that my father has spent so much of his life describing. Well, here's Jacob wrestling. We perceive it in this story, wrestling with an angel, but also wrestling with his lesser self, wrestling with his past, wrestling with the promises God has made about his future. And the wrestle is described in this, verse 25. When he, and, and this is tricky because there's so many he's and him's 
And it's really hard to tell who's, who's whom. So I'll try to spell it out. When he, the angel, saw that he prevailed not against him, Jacob, he, the angel, touched the hollow of his, Jacob's, thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he, Jacob, wrestled with him, the angel. So other translations clarify it. The angel struck Jacob's hip socket and dislocated Jacob's hip. Hello. And then he, the angel, said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he, the angel, said unto him, Jacob, What is thy name? And he, Jacob, said, Jacob. And he, the angel, said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Now this is Jacob the supplanter becoming Israel the prevailer. All in the course of this wrestling match. It's really fascinating. He's no longer taking hold of the heel of his brothers, whether that's Esau at birth or Laban uh, off in Padanaram. Instead, he's taking the hand of his God and trying to prevail with him. At the same time, he's trying to help to allow God to prevail in his life. So grateful for President Nelson's emphasis on that. Israel meaning let God prevail. But the irony here is what's happening in the wrestle, it almost seems like an even match of sorts, which is shocking. Like, how does, how does he get the angel in this hold to the point that the angel's like, let me go? But at the same time, what's happening with this dislocated hip um, on Israel's part? It's really interesting. By the way, the word Israel has that S-R in it. And SR, according to some Hebrew translations, also is the root of Sarah, where princess comes from. That's why the King James translate this as, as a prince hast thou power with God. Other translations don't follow that path in terms of Sarah, princess, so Sir Israel, prince. They instead speak of this as, no, this is, your name is Israel because you have struggled or wrestled or striven with God and have prevailed. There is that sense of prevailing there. Now on that side of things, that makes me wonder, do we sometimes give up on our wrestles with God too easily? Because that's not what, what Jacob does here. Like the, again, when the angel is like, let me go. And he says, not until you bless me. I wonder sometimes in the parable of the importunate widow, or the parable of the unjust judge, depending on what you frame it. Here's this judge that doesn't want to help, and the widow just won't give up. She just bird dogs him. Just, no, I'm not. You have to bless me, please. Now, this is one of those contraries you have to prove. Yes, we need to honor God's will. But yes, we need to exercise our own so that we have something to offer in the first place. And, and Jacob's not given up. God, I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your blessing. And I will wrestle for it. Do we exercise our faith? There's a wrestling match. Uh, there's few things that are more exercised than a wrestling match. 
when I was in Jerusalem, there were four of us in our apartment, uh, our, our little dorm room. And unfortunately, I was the second biggest. And the first biggest was a, a former heavyweight wrestling champion uh, in high school. Uh, his nickname was The Barbarian. Uh, awesome guy, but man, was he strong. And unfortunately, I was the second strongest. And it wasn't a close second. When he wanted to wrestle, he wouldn't even call it wrestling. He'd just say, hey, Halverson, you want to play forgiveness? And I'm like, what's that mean? So, well, basically, it's I, I wrestle you to the mat, and then you forgive me. Huh, sounds fun. It wasn't, but we tried. At times, he'd say, okay, put me in any position you want, and we'll start from there. I'm like, okay. So I kind of wrap myself around him thinking, I'd never wrestled before, I didn't know any moves. And so I, I'd get him in some position that I thought my, my old football strength would at least carry me through. And he kind of sounded excited and go, you ready? I'm like, uh, I thought I was until you sounded that excited. And then like five seconds later, I was on the ground. Well, do we exercise our faith with God? Do we wrestle? Even that word wrestle, it only shows up like twice in scripture and it's in this story. And some translators suggest that it has something to do with getting dusty. And, and that's an interesting word for wrestling, too. It's this dust match. Well, are we willing to sit in dust and ashes and sackcloth? Are we willing to lower ourselves? Dust and divinity here? I don't know. There's a, the great thing about Hebrew is you can play with the language and just really think of nuance and, and symbolism. It, it's a beautiful, a beautiful language. Now, I'm not trying to say we're trying to twist God's arm. It's not it at all. That's, that's not a, a, a good wrestling move, I guess. But instead, are we showing him how desperately we need his blessings? Are we advocating for our will at the same time we are laying it upon the altar to accept his? Like I said, to the degree that this wrestling match seems kind of like a tie. Poor Jacob with his dislocated hip, but having the angel in some unbreakable hold. It's amazing to me. There's covenant connection. God's not going to give up on us. We better not give up on God. Is there a joint recognition of one another's strength in this, even though we are infinitely below the strength of God? Well, verse 29, strange verse. Jacob then asks this angel, once the, the wrestling match is over, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. You just gave me a new name. What is yours? And the angel said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Now that one, we just kind of have to sit back and wink and nod. They go, huh. So when Jacob got his new name, he asks this, heavenly messenger for his name and the and the messenger simply responds why are you asking me for that no i'm not going to give that to you but i will give you a blessing and that's exactly what he does now verse 30 jacob called the name of the place peniel which means the face of god and here's why he named it for i have seen god face to face and my life is preserved <laughs> if i can face god and live Maybe I shouldn't be so scared of Esau after all. And so verse 31, as he passed over Penuel, which is just a play on the same word, Peniel, the sun rose upon him. He halted upon his thigh, that hip still hurt. And therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day.
because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. It's like, wait, what? How come you don't eat that part of the animal? Uh, it's a strange story. I, I won't get into it. We just, we steer, steer clear of that ligament, <laughs> okay? But what it boils down to is you picture this, I don't know, limping <laughs> Jacob, but standing tall, ready now to, to boldly stride across the book Jabbok to face his brother, because he faced God. He knows his blessings will be with him. It's no longer the dark night of the soul. The sun has risen upon him. Oh, there's beautiful poetic symmetry here. Jacob's ladder on one side of it, the dark night, and now returning from this round trip voyage with the sun rising upon him. Well, 33 then opens with this sunrise and is one of my favorite chapters in Genesis, even though it's one we seldom spend much time on. I hinted earlier about Esau as an older brother that's been offended by the younger brother. Um, we, we saw last week the negative side of Esau. Today we get to see the glorious, beautiful, positive side of Esau. And to me, I see this as a glorious twist on the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the parable about, of the prodigal son is about a younger brother who does something wrong with the inheritance. Sound familiar? Birthright, blessing. I want it now. This younger brother wants his birthright. And will it affect the older brother? Yeah, because especially if it's land and produce and cattle and flocks and herds, that can keep producing if we started with something bigger to begin with, right? I mean, if that's the, the, what we're trying to multiply, we'll start with something, if our down payment is bigger, is this better? Then uh, the investment will grow more, more quickly. And yet you forced dad to cut it in half long before it was necessary so you could have your, your portion. And then you left and you wasted it all in riotous living. And I've been the brother that's been here at dad's side the whole time. Now, this is where it gets interesting. In the parable of the prodigal son, you have a younger brother and an older brother. The younger brother leaves and then comes back. The older brother stays the whole time. Now, in this story, Jacob is the younger. He left. He wasn't prodigal. But he left and now he comes back and he is really concerned about older, how older brother is going to react. Because older brother never left. Now, this is where we need to stop and think hard about the parable of the prodigal son. Because... I'll confess, when I was young uh, and prideful, I really didn't like the parable of the lost sheep, which starts Luke 15. There's three parables in Luke 15, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, aka the prodigal. And I really didn't like the lost sheep because it says that God rejoices more over the soul that has returned than over the 99 just persons who have no need of repentance. And that ticked me off. Because I was trying to be the just person who needed no repentance. And I'm like, wait a minute, my friends that aren't even trying? People that are out sowing their wild oats or living it up however they want. And then, oh, but then they'll come back and change. And, and you like them more than me that's been trying to do what's right the whole time? Well, at one time, and when I was you know, studying that chapter with my self-proclaimed uh, pity party, the Spirit called me out. I mean, in bold terms. It was one of those two-by-four revelations. No still small voice. 
And it was like, oh, you're one of the 99 just persons who need no repentance? Wow, I'm so impressed, Jared. No repentance needed. Hmm. Well, if there's 99 of you, can you list some of the other 98? Go, go ahead. I got time. I'm eternal. And as I'm racking my brain, like, oh, I get it. There, there aren't 98 others, and I'm certainly not one of the 99. Because I'm not a just person who needs no repentance. We both know that. And then it dawned on me. Who's the only one who could righteously and rightfully be angry about that designation? That God likes repentant sinners more than, than perfectly faithful sons? Well, that would be the guy telling the story. The only one who has right to feel that way is Jesus himself. He's the only elder brother who's never left the father's side. He's, he is the one. There aren't 99. He's the only. It's it, flip it. There's 99 lost sheep. And God will sacrifice his one. That one will sacrifice himself. So the 99 even have a chance to return. And amazing that Jesus would so humbly say, and God's more excited about your return than my non-departure. Because I was never a question mark. You guys all were. But you've changed. You've come home. I've made that possible. So in the way I read it then is when you get to the parable of the prodigal son, knowing what we now know from the parable of the lost sheep, we look at that older brother in the story and think that's naturally what a perfectly loyal older brother would feel. You mean that's not what you feel, Jesus? You mean you're, you're not that kind of older brother? Now we would picture Esau in the same way we would picture the older brother of the prodigal son. We would picture him as angry and as bitter, and as jealous, and as, as still as mad as the day his brother left, and turning to the father and saying, what? You're going to let him back and kill a fatted calf to celebrate? Well, whose half of the inheritance are you taking the fatted calf out of, dad, since it's all mine now? No. He was dead. Let him stay that way. That's if justice only ruled without mercy intervening, then yes, that would be an, a correct response or at least a just response from a perfectly just older brother. And that's what we would expect from Esau here. Isn't that, that's what Jacob expects. I'm scared to death. I hope half of us will survive. I hope enough of these gifts sent in my, before me will appease him that I might find a little grace here. But here's the point of it all. That is not the kind of older brother Esau is. And more importantly, that is not the kind of older brother we have in Jesus. He's not the older brother of the prodigal son, even though he's the older brother of every prodigal son and daughter. He's an older brother of a different type. He's not the kind that chastises dad for running out to meet us. In fact, this older brother runs out right alongside the father to find us on the way. He doesn't just allow for a robe and a ring. He provides his very own robes of righteousness to clothe our nakedness and cover our sins. 
And more than just allowing dad to give a fatted calf, he offers himself as the lamb without blemish so that he who was dead can be alive again. That's our older brother. That's our Esau. And so to look at chapter 33 through that lens, I hope you see Esau assuming the role of redeemer here in magnificent ways. Verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came. And with him four hundred men, and he divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. He just exactly what he expected and what he feared. Get ready to run if you need to. Verse 2, he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. So, yeah, he's still playing favorites. Or perhaps he's recognizing the line where the, the covenant lineage will, will continue. Verse 3, he passed over before them. So he's going to be the first one to, to have to face the wrath of his brother. And he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Seven from creation is that number for completeness, wholeness, totality. And here is a complete and total submission to his older brother. Time after time. It, to me, I, I, I wish they would film this somehow. To just see this massive flock and herd split up and subdivided and then put into different groups and Jacob ahead and seeing Esau and his army ahead in the distance and Jacob coming before this massive train behind him and, and bowing and then coming up and coming closer and then bowing and coming up and coming closer. And for me, from a distance, Esau, who is this? And what is happening? And get closer and closer and beginning to recognize this younger brother, recalling the last feelings he had when he last saw him. But as Jacob gets closer and closer, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him. Sound like the father of the prodigal son? Well, here it's the brother and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. That's almost identical to the language in Moses 7 about the reunion of Zion above with Zion below. Jacob and Esau, Christ and each of us, to run, to embrace, to fall on each other's necks, to kiss, to weep, Notice there's no discussion. There will be later. There's no explanation demanded. There's no hesitation. There's just instant acceptance. There's only love. There's only grace. There's only forgiveness. I hope you see Genesis 33 as your preview of coming attractions. Your preview of forgiveness of your rendezvous with the Redeemer himself. Notice how it plays out. Verse 5, Esau lifted up his eyes. He saw the women and the children off in the distance and said, Who are those with thee? And Jacob responds, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. I know where I stand before you, and it's just kneeling. Now all the wives and all the children come forward. They bow before Esau as well. 
And then verse 8, Esau says, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? How come you kept... All these flocks and herds uh, got to me before you did. What's up with that? And Jacob's response, Well, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. I remember what we saw in the previous chapter. I will appease him with the present that goeth before me. Afterward I will see his face. Peradventure he will accept of me. I do wonder and worry that we sometimes serve the Lord out of that same kind of fear. As if our service, our mission, our, our temple uh, worship, our, our magnifying of callings, everything, all our works, let's just put it that way, our works, are they meant to, to pay off our debt? Are they meant to appease God in hopes that we've done enough that he'll turn a blind eye to our sins? It reminds me of the story in the Book of Mormon when Ammon and his brothers just can't bear to see another massacre of their beloved converts among the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And they say, come back with us. The Nephites will protect you. And the king of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's says, there's no way. They will take out their frustration on us. They will wipe us out because of our many murders towards them. No, I can't do that. I'd rather be slain by the Lamanites. And then Ammon keeps pleading with him and reassuring him. And the king says a fascinating thing. He says, okay, maybe we'll give it a try. And maybe this would work. We will be your, the Nephites' slaves until we have paid them back for the many murders we have committed against them. Now notice what he's saying. Slavery in order to recompense them for what we've taken well, there's two problems with this. Number one, it's murder. How do you make restitution for that? You can't bring back the people that are gone. So number one, that's a logical impossibility. And number two, Ammon says to him, sorry, I can see where you're coming from. Maybe your heart's in the right place, but it's against the law of our father, the king, that there should be slavery. We don't believe in it. So it's not just illogical, it's illegal. And I love that because I see too many of us, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this myself, hoping to enslave ourselves to the Savior so we can make it up to Him for the many murders, for the sins that we've committed. And again, Jesus would say to us, number one, you can't make it up. Those sins occurred. But more importantly, my father, the king, doesn't believe in slavery. It's a gift of grace I'm offering. It, it's not a, a work of works to try to pay me back. Then I would owe you forgiveness, and I want it to be a gift. Let's keep it at that. So in verse 9, Esau says, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. Esau's content with his place. He's not seeking to supplant <laughs> Jacob. Remember, supplant is Jacob's name. I'm not trying to Jacob you, Jacob. I'm not trying to supplant the supplanter. I'm fine. I'm not worried about lost blessings or birthrights. I've been incredibly blessed myself. Just like Dad said. Just like he said. Verse 10, Jacob says, Nay, I pray thee. 
If now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand, for therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. That's one of my favorite verses anywhere. He just named that place Peniel. I've seen the face of God. But now I saw the face of my elder brother as if it were the face of God. And he was pleased with me. I was so afraid that I had permanently offended him, that I had ruined the relationship beyond redemption. But no, he was pleased. He offered me his grace. And I didn't have to work for it. I didn't buy it. It was a gift that I can accept. No wonder in verse 11, he keeps offering, take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, just as you are, big brother, because I have enough. And he urged him and he took it. But you see that the status or the, the feeling behind it has changed. I still want to offer my all to the Lord. I still want to give him my flocks and herds of my very heart, but not to pay him back, just to thank him, just to recognize how graciously he has dealt with me. And I just, I want to give such powerful principles that we're learning here. Well, verse 12, he, Esau, says, let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before thee. Talk about beautiful plural pronouns with Esau leading the way. It's not me versus you. Now it's just us, brothers, returning to our father in the promised land. So amazing. Instead of tug of war over the birthright, now it's become hot potato with the blessings of God. No, take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. And they keep offering it to each other until finally Esau says, okay, thank you. But at least let me bring you in. And, and Jacob's like, no, no, no. It's, you got 400 men. I got little kids. Okay. Uh, we're slow. Don't wait for us. It's like, no, we'll wait for it. No, it's okay. You go ahead without us. Well, at least let us send, keep a few servants back to help. No, we're okay. No, I insist. Okay, fine. And, and again, treating each other better and trying not to put the other one out. It's such a magnificent reversal of everything we saw earlier in their childhoods. They have both grown up in God and become incredible men of God. And by the end of the chapter, Jacob is now settled down into the promised land in Canaan, near a town called Shechem, where Jacob's well would end up being. And he builds an altar, just like Grandpa Abraham had. He calls it El Elohe Israel, which means God, El, as in Elohim, is the God of Israel, just as he was always meant to be. We have come full circle. And the God of Jacob's ladder is soon to be the God of Jacob's well. And... His sojourn outside the promised land will now become a period of growth, of testing, of sacrifice within the promised land as this family gets ready to turn into the, the family business all that God intended for them.
to bless the entire world. But before we get there, and we'll see that next week with the story of Joseph, if I could just give you a few highlights from chapter 34 and 35, which aren't part of this week's curriculum, they're skip-over chapters, but ones that we really need to wrestle with. This first one's hard. Genesis 34 is about the rape of Dinah. Maybe that's why it was skipped in the curriculum. But notice what happens here. It's worth wrestling with. Verse 1 and 2, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob. So 12 sons, we'll see, but this one named daughter. She went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, the city was named after him, when he saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. This is completely unjustifiable. There's no excuse for his behavior. And yet he tries to make one in verse 3. His soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. Now, I, there are so many problems in what that verse just said. For example, his soul clave unto Dinah? Well, let's be more specific. The Doctrine and Covenants defines the soul as the body and the spirit. So were both of those involved in what just happened? Or was it not the soul, which includes the spirit, but the body alone that was cleaving unto Dinah? This is a hard chapter because of what it deals with. But as we discuss chastity for a few moments, as we talk about sexual purity, it has to be a whole-souled experience. Elder Holland's incredible talk of souls, symbols, and sacraments uh, or what he gave in uh, the general conference version he gave years later called personal purity, that is well worth rereading and studying. Because part of that, the soul's part of that soul's symbols and sacraments is that exact issue, that marital intimacy is meant to be a fusion of spirit as much as it is a oneness of body. So that's my first issue, soul. Second, he loved Oh, really? He loved the damsel? Because love tends to put the other person first. Love is, confines itself to limits. Love can tell itself no for the benefit of the person that is loved. I don't think it's love here. In fact, I know it isn't. It is lust. He lusted after the damsel. Now that's more accurate. And then finally, he spake kindly unto her. Well, maybe he did. In fact, he probably did to try to get her to rationalize what he was doing, to try to win her I don't, approval, forgiveness. I don't even know where to go with this. It's, he may have spoken kindly, but he did anything but act kindly toward her. So if we were being honest, we would say his body clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he lusted after the damsel and did not do kindly unto her. That, you can dress up the language of intimacy any way that you want, but there is nothing that can justify sexual assault or rape. Now, verse 5, when Jacob heard about this, can you imagine the feelings of a father towards the only daughter that we know of for him? When he heard he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, now his sons were with his cattle in the field, 
and Jacob held his peace until they were come. Now, what's amazing about that is this whole chapter, Genesis 34, keeps pitting side by side examples of passion under control with passion uncontrolled. Bridle all your passions is a phrase we see in the Book of Mormon. Well, here Jacob is doing exactly that. And his is the passion of anger, of outrage, of moral indignation. How could you do that to my daughter? But he holds his peace until his sons can come and they can discuss, what are we to do here? We are strangers in this land. We just, yes, it's been promised to us and to our seed forever, but it's not all ours right now. So what, what should we do? His was passion under control. Compare it to Shechem, and his was unbridled passion that resulted in, in horrible things being done to Dinah. Number seven, the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. The men were grieved. There's first emotion, cannot be helped. They were very wroth. Second emotion, probably can't be helped either. But what could be helped is how you act on it. They were grieved and very wroth because he had wrought folly in Israel in line with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. There's an understatement. But folly, this is foolishness. It's worse, far worse than that. It's things that shouldn't happen, ought not to be done. So again, strong emotions, uh, passions bringing those, but how will we act them out? Verse 8, Hamor, this is Shechem's father, communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. Well, now we're back to the same issue we started with. The soul? No. Only the body. Longeth? No. Lusteth. Give her to him? Too late for that because he took her to himself. We talked about the objectification of intimacy before. We, see, we saw the commodification of intimacy as a result. Well, here we're back to that objectification of Dinah. And now for the commodification, verse 12. Shechem says, Ask me never so much dowry and gift. I will give according as ye shall say unto me. But give me the damsel to wife. Ask me never so much dowry and gift. What's your price? How do I commodify her? How can I pay you back for what I've already done? This is a far cry from, from Jacob working, serving selflessly for seven years. And the time passing like it was a few days because of the love True word, which he had for Rachel. Lust can't wait. Lust wants to pay for things afterwards. Lust is the law of decreasing returns, as opposed to the law of increasing returns, where love builds upon love, grows out of patience and self-control. There's, there's, we're talking about two completely different things here. And so I'll give her anything. Well, too late to give her virtue, yours, that is. Raping her did not take away her virtue at all. But it, took, it definitely took away Shechem's. 
And that's not something he can give her back. Uh, it took away, he cannot offer her his patience, his self-control, his bridled passion. It's too late for all of that. Then in verse 13 through 15, notice what the sons of Jacob decide. They answer Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully. It's like, well, we're going to fight fire with fire. You used our sister. We'll use you. You weren't honest with her. We won't be honest with you. We cannot do this thing, they said. And here's why. To give our sister to one that is uncircumcised? I mean, that's outside the, the confines of covenant. Sorry. But in this we will consent unto you. If ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. So that's it. Um, we try to live our lives within the confines of covenant. And as long as you do too, then great. You can, we'll give you our, our little sister. Now, this is not just for Shechem. This is the whole, all the people of the city of Shechem. Uh, and so this is going to be a tough sell, I imagine, when Shechem and Hamor go back to their, the fellow citizens there and tell the men, hey, got some news for you. Uh, there's some people that have moved into just outside of town, and they are asking, well, Shechem really wants to marry their daughter, Dinah. And they're probably thinking, great, do, whatever, do what you need to do. Uh, and they said, well, uh, we have to get circumcised. What is that? And they explain it. And again, I can imagine the men of the city going, are you kidding me? But then notice how they make this tough sell. It's really interesting. Verse 23, they say to them, Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. So you see what they're doing? Again, we're commodifying something. Yes, this is going to be a painful operation, but you'll get better, and you'll really get better temporally. Because if we can start intermarrying with them, then we can take them into our tribes. We can subsume them into our city and... And that way we can have their flocks and herds. And look at them. This is a wealthy tribe moving in. We can take them over. All we have to do is this little token offering, so to speak. Well, this is part of the deceitfulness on the part of the sons of, of Jacob, particularly Simeon and Levi. Because what ends up happening is the men of the city do get circumcised. But that simply allows Simeon and Levi to do what they'd been planning all along. Verse 25 lets us know, It came to pass on the third day, when they were sore, this is a difficult operation for grown men, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, and this is full blood, both all three from Leah, they took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. In fact, they went beyond that. Later it says they spoiled the city. They took their sheep and their, their oxen and their asses and anything they could find, they brought them out. They took the women and children unto themselves. It says they spoiled even all that was in the house. Now, Jacob is horrified by this. By the way, when the word, they came boldly. I want to, oh, really? Speaking of words that are misused, it doesn't take boldness when you know your target cannot defend themselves. Sound a little like rape? Exactly what Shechem had done to Dinah, using his strength to overpower her and 
and do things that she could not stop him from doing? Well, again, to make your enemy powerless and then to take out your own passions on them. Well, we've gone from sexual assault to murder, all in the course of this chapter, and Jacob is horrified. The one person who had had, I mean, if anybody feels just as passionately as Simeon and Levi, it's Jacob. And yet it is bridled passion. It is, I'll hold my peace. When he finds out what his sons have done, he is equally horrified. He says to them, Ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. Do you have any idea what you've done? As newcomers into this, into this vicinity, we will be on everyone's hit list now. What have you done? And they respond simply, Well, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? He has prostituted her. No fault of her own. No diminution, no loss of chastity on her part. But they treated her as one. They objectified and commodified. And that is inexcusable in our book. Now, this, like I said, is a hard chapter. Let me make it a little more personal with this thought. As we saw with Leah and Rachel and those mandrakes, and is there something I can do to use intimacy or the potential of childbearing in some way to get what I want out of this? I will hire Jacob or here treat Dinah as a harlot just to get what I most want. Well, the irony is this whole chapter is a story of people misunderstanding the covenant to the point of using it as some kind of bargaining chip, using it, abusing it, just so that people could get what they wanted. And it goes both ways. From Shechem's point, it was a matter of, hey, if I just circumcise myself, I don't care about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't care that this is some token of a covenant that I have no interest in making. But if I do it, if I at least say I'm doing it and pay lip service to the covenant, then I get what I want, namely Dinah. How does he convince other people? Same way. Hey, if you guys will pay lip service to this covenant and just take on the token, you'll get something better out of it. You'll get all their flocks and herds. You'll be rich. And then Simeon and Levi, same thing. What do we want? We want revenge. And how can we do it? Oh, by using the covenant as bait. And if we can trick them into making, uh, taking upon themselves the covenant, then we can abuse them. We can do exactly to them what we intend. Now, this is horrific when we understand the significance of sexuality, when we understand the importance of intimacy within the covenant, since posterity is what it boils down to. A family defined by family to bless all the families of the earth. And yet to use that covenant to prostitute its purpose is exactly what's happening here. Now, at the risk of being too frank, I remember years ago in a married student ward serving in a bishopric and having multiple couples come in for disciplinary counsels. 
Thankfully, I don't remember any of their identities. There's something kind about the atonement in that, in that. But I do remember enough circumstances of, it was typically fornication, where a couple had been unchaste before marriage. But not wanting to suffer the shame of canceled temple ceilings or of confessions to families, they just went through with their ceiling, though they were not worthy of it. But the Spirit working upon them and working within their, co their consciences, eventually they came forth and confessed to the bishop what had happened before. And often that resulted in a disciplinary council to try to find what the Lord would have us do to help them just understand more deeply the significance of the, co of the covenant. Well, again, I just remember sometimes having this feeling from couples that almost gives confusion, like, well, wait a minute, I know what we did was wrong, uh, but is it really that big of a deal, especially now that we're married? So, in fact, that's why we wanted to get married, because, or one of the reasons, because then it was no longer wrong, right? Uh, and I just remember feeling so, like, conflicted with this, because it felt like, to a degree, that they were using the covenant to justify non-covenant actions. It's like, well, it's, it's everything's okay now, so we can keep doing what we did before. And the feeling I always got was the status of the act has changed, but has the motivation behind it? Has the sense of self-sacrifice and putting the other person first? Did you bypass the altar experience where you are laying yourself upon the altar in order to put your spouse first? Have you bypassed the celestial room with its, or excuse me, the ceiling room with its mirrors reflecting eternity? Did you not see that? All that went before and all that will come after because of this covenant? Did you not see the light of Christ as that chandelier resting over the altar of sacrifice? Or did you do those deeds in the dark? And then just assume that the covenant would make everything okay. The status of the act may have changed, but has the state of your heart? I don't know. And so to me, there's something important. Well, it's this same bishop that I served with at the time is the one who always used to say, lust is not lost in marriage. And if we are using the covenant as some way, some kind of get out of sin free card, then we've misunderstood its meaning. And we need to recognize that it's love and not lust, that it's passions bridled in order to be filled with love, as that Book of Mormon verse clarifies, that intimacy is not a bargaining chip. And our loved ones aren't meant to be objectified or commodified or prostituted in any way. The covenant is, is serious, and I pray that we take it seriously. Now, Genesis 34 then ends, and turns to Genesis 35 where we will end our lesson. Like I said, Genesis 36 is simply the genealogy of Esau, just like the end of 35 is the genealogy of Jacob. 
But what we see at the, for, through the bulk of this chapter, knowing what has just happened in Shechem where they're staying and thinking, I don't know if it's wise for us to stay here right now. Let us relocate to a place I know God can be with us if we will only covenant to be with God. And that's Bethel. So in 35 verse 1, God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, house of God, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. You've already set up a pillar. Now let's complete the process and turn that pillar into an altar so that you can truly make this mini mountain of the Lord. It is the house of God after all. Come there. And so Jacob turns to his household, including those that have just made horrible mistakes, namely Simeon and Levi. And there's a, we won't study it today, but there's something else that happens in 35 that disqualifies Reuben from the covenant. We'll go back and review all these things next week when we see the covenant truly passed to Joseph. But despite all of these mistakes that his children are making, and despite the challenges that they're facing in their, their first few months within the promised land, notice, notice the, the plan ahead. Verse 2 and 3, Jacob says to his household, to all that were with him, first, put away the strange gods that are among you. Maybe it was Laban that had problems with that. Maybe some of this has trickled down. We have to be clean. We have to be free of that. So, be, so put them away. Second, be clean. And third, change your garments. And once you've done that, then the next step, let us arise, go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. We've kind of gotten back to some days of distress and we need to know where to go from here. And so what better place to renew ourselves and to regain some perspective than at the mountain of the Lord, than at the house of God, that at the altar, at the pillar of Jacob's ladder. Let's start climbing again. If, if we have slipped off, if we've removed ourselves and fallen back to the base, the Lord will still be there leaning up against the ladder, helping to steady it. Let's develop greater faith and real repentance and recommit ourselves to all of this. You know, it's interesting. We so often talk about temple worthiness, and that is absolutely essential. I think sometimes we don't talk enough about temple readiness. And I think both of those need to go hand in hand. Uh, someone can be perfectly worthy. No sin to keep them out of God's house. But do they know anything about the covenants they're about to make? Are they ready for this? And I get a sense in verse 2 and 3 that Jacob is, is trying to help us prepare in both ways. Verse 2 was temple worthiness. Put away those strange gods. Eliminate your idolatry, whatever it might look like. Be clean. Change your garments from spotted and speckled to a a solid white of purity. And if that's worthiness, how about readiness? Guys, let's get up and let's get ready for this. Go to Bethel. Let's make the journey so that we can find our way to God's presence. Let's try to understand what he wants to teach us there. 
what he wants to have happen to us there. Let's make an altar so we understand what is being asked of us. It's one thing to be clean. It's another thing to know that we are to become sacrificial. And so let's be ready for this. Worthiness and readiness come together. Later in this chapter, after they've come, in verse 9 and 10, God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, this will sound familiar, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. Now, just redundant? No. Reconfirming? Yes. You received this new name when you wrestled with the angel and prevailed and let God prevail in your life. Then we've been through some hard things. We've come back to the base of Jacob's ladder. You're still Israel. Will you live up to that? More importantly, since you have been, will your children, will your posterity be the house of Israel and reconfirm to be the house of Israel at the house of God? That's really where the blessings of the covenant begin to spread to all the kindreds of the earth, all families, both sides of the veil. Then verse 11, God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. There's renewal of Eden. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. Kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. So again, a reconfirmation, direct from God to Jacob, actually from God to Israel, that I am promising the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to you, Israel, and to all your house. Then verse 14, And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. You see how we've come full circle? We started today's lesson at Bethel and we've returned. We started it with him viewing Jacob's ladder reach to heaven. And we ended with him returning to its base to begin an upward climb. As I said, the end of this chapter then ends with the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel, the death of Isaac, the genealogy of Jacob, then 36, the genealogy of Esau. This whole generation seems to be passing away. So that next week we can begin where we left off with that rising generation of the sons of Jacob. All 12 of them. There's some intense stories yet ahead. And so many of them are stories of reconciliation. As we saw between Jacob and Esau today as we see between Jacob and Jehovah as they meet at that ladder. That is really where the Lord is inviting us. As we know from that beautiful hymn that takes Jacob's ladder as its text. Sarah Adams is the one that wrote the song, Nearer My God to Thee. She, hers was a hard life. Hers was a stony pillow but one from which she trusted God would awaken her and lift her to heavenly heights. Her mother died when Sarah was five. Her father died 
when she was about 20. She herself had very poor health. She was losing her hearing. And for someone inclined to music, that would be difficult. She was caring for her invalid sister, who died when Sarah was 41. And so worn down by that selfless service, she passed away herself less than two years later. But through all of those difficulties and trials, she knew that she was being inched towards eternity and coming to know the God that she loved. And that's all she wanted, to be nearer to him. That was Jacob's hope. And all that we've seen today was a step-by-step, rung-by-rung journey toward him. And so, coming back to the base of Jacob's ladder, can we sing together? Though like the wanderer, the sun gone down, darkness be over me, my rest a stone. Yet in my dreams I'd be nearer my God to thee, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. There let the way appear, steps unto heaven, all that thou sendest me in mercy given. Angels to beckon me, nearer my God to thee, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. Then with my waking thoughts, bright with thy praise, out of my stony griefs, Bethel I'll raise. So by my woes to be nearer my God to thee, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. Or if on joyful wing, cleaving the sky, sun, moon, and stars forgot, upward I fly, still all my song shall be nearer my God to thee. Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. My dear brothers and sisters, if you find your head resting on rocky soil, if you find stony grief surrounding you, I pray that the Spirit will confirm to you that God is beckoning you nearer. And that someday it will be joyful that you are winging your way, sun, moon, stars behind you, forgotten, along with those stony griefs far off in the distance. I testify of an elder brother who never left the Father's side, who is running out to meet us in order to fall upon us weeping, joyful, eager to bring us home. I am so grateful that all of us, sons and daughters of Jacob, are being invited to let God prevail in our lives. And with an elder brother that makes that prevailing possible, continue wrestling, my friends. Continue climbing the ladder. I testify that God is with us every step of the way.